Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com welcome 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 back to the bob left sex podcast my guest today is dan huff producer and guitarist extraordinaire dan glad to have you on the podcast thank you very much bob honored to be here okay when we were setting up the time you say you were tracking until six what are you working on Today I'm working on a, a young new artist you will not have heard of him. His name is Cam Marlowe, spelled with a K, and uh, new one of the new kind of breed of artists here in Nashville. He's staggering. He's an alpha male vocalist, and by that I mean literally every take he sings on the tracking session would be considered a comp, a first-rate vocal. He's that good. It's like old old school type of recording. As a matter of fact, he's so good that I encourage him to get live vocals on the tracks, which is unheard of these days. How did you get involved? Like I do pretty much with everybody, every artist. Usually the label calls me and, and we'll, we'll say, we have somebody that we're really excited about and we think you'd be a good fit for, for the artist. And they usually set up a meeting and, you know, usually goes over pretty well. And then it's just working out the... I don't develop these artists. They they call me to make records that sound like singles. And, and, you know, I mean, it's such a cliche thing, but they want hit records, right? So right. That's, that's it's, I put my shoes on one at a time, right? And then you want to make hit records. But so, so it's, it's kind of like a shotgun marriage. You're, you're, you're trying to, to digest the music, the, 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 uh, the vision of an artist and and you go in the studio and start. And so uh, that's it, you know, and that's, and that's kind of what I've made a living doing the last 20, 25 years. All my years of playing stu- studio sessions as a guitar player, I had no idea, but it was only in preparation for what I do now. Okay. Let's drill down a little bit. They say, we want you to work on this record. We want you to make a record. Yeah. They give you the music. How long does it take to decide? And sometimes do you say no? I do say no, but that brings up a good point. I, I, I love to work. So I'll default to yes more than not because uh, I'm fortunate that I have a track record 
labels are pretty selective who they're going to bring me. It's going to be pretty top shelf. And that sounds, uh, if it sounds uppity, I don't mean it to be that way at all. It just, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm at a good point. I should say they they bring me really good artists and, uh, uh, every once in a while it'll be a no, but, but for the most part, you know, if I can fit it into my schedule, it's, it's a yes, you know, and, and I've been doing it long enough or I really enjoy the Rubik's cube of trying to figure out where people are at musically. I, at my heart, I'm a session musician is what I am. I mean, I, I, I'm not a, um, well, I, other people would argue and say I'm a producer at heart. I, I, I see the world through the prism of, of a guitar and then it goes out exponentially. But there's always a way to figure out music, you know, and, and I've always enjoyed so many types of music. So uh, it's it's not always predicated on 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 one thing or another. Obviously, I'm I'm one of the older guys uh, in 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 my business right now. I'm 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 way on the old side. As a matter of fact, I remember being a, a young little snot nosed guitar player in Los Angeles when when I was in my twenties, and I I would see people in their forties and think, what the hell are they doing in the studio? Those old men. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But by, by those, by dog years, I'm, I'm Methuselah right now, you know? Okay. Let's assume you get the music, you say go, then you want to meet the artist. What is that experience like? It's like meeting anybody. I mean, you, you, you know, personalities, you, uh, many times you hear somebody sing, you hear what they do musically and, and, it has nothing to do with the pers- their personality when you meet them in a room. Uh, more than not, most people that I that I work with they they they're big big personalities, and then you meet them and they're they're, they're shy, removed. You know, I mean, like a, I guess like a lot of entertainers are they they spe- they have a specific thing that they do, and they have a language. and And my job at that point is not to. Um, is not to ingratiate them to me. It's I have to figure out their language. I have to figure out what they're trying to say. I mean, musicians don't always use the same adjectives, right? When somebody talks about something being big and expansive, well, I mean, what does that mean? Big and expansive is that is that uh, uh, is that Led Zeppelin, right? Right. Is, is that Vivaldi? I mean, it's it you know you know most of the time my job seems to to be seventy percent figuring out what they mean by their adjectives. I, I need something to sound more brown. I need to sound more fuzzy, more, more uh, uh, intimate. Well, again, these are, these are, these are adjectives that, that, that could be applied to a lot of things. So you have to figure that out first. You have to figure out what they mean by what they say. A lot of that can be done by listening to their demos, by their previous recordings, if they've done that. And you start the conversation there. But it, it's, it, I guess, I guess what I'm coming to, Bob, is it, it's, it, it's different every time. There's no one size fits all. And I guess that's the thing for me musically that's, that, that keeps me engaged and interested in this whole thing. Because uh, if it was the same thing every time, I, I'd get really bored. And in saying that, I live in Nashville, Tennessee now. I, I'm, I'm, I'll just say it. I, I never in a million years would have ever thought I would be involved in country music, Right. Let's go back to the other thing and then get back to country music. So you meet the act. Probably the act already wants to work with you. How long does it take to have this conversation before work on the album begins? It, I mean, it, can, it can be hours. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it, there is no rhyme or reason to any of this stuff. I mean, if, if it wasn't a perfect world for me, 
we would meet several times. We would do rehearsals. We would do pre-production. We would spend time really diving deep, getting to know one another, uh, artists, myself, doing demos, doing a lot of that stuff way before we record records. That's not the nature of the business. The nature of the business is when these labels put you together with them, they want it. They want it now and they want it. They want it successful immediately. Okay. So now it's a go. Yeah. What's the next step in making a record? Do you have any rehearsals or you just go straight to the studio? Normally I don't get that. The, most of these artists are, are, are starting their touring already. So their time is limited. First thing is, uh, you know, I, I want to hear the songs you want to record. One thing that I'm, I'm not interested in doing is being an A&R person. And traditionally in Nashville, the producers were A&R instruments and, and, and many of them were, were publishers. And so they would come in with the songs. Here's what we're going to record. I have zero interest in that. As a matter of fact, I think it's, I think there's a lot of, I think I got into this business because there was, there was that component that would, would, would constitute almost, almost a, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it. It's, 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 it's best if you just help them make their music. I don't want to be somebody's publisher. I don't want to have uh, incentive to, from a financial standpoint, I just want to help people make music. That's, that's what I like to do. Right. And I think a lot of artists, when I started doing this, were interested in that because they, they didn't see a producer coming in with another interest in having his songs recorded to help his publishing company. You said earlier, they hire you to have hit records. When you listen to the demos, do you only pull a project or do a project if you hear a hit? What if you're in the studio and there is no hit? I usually get inter- interested because I hear some element of their music that, that speaks to me. Most of the people that I work with, they've, they've come through uh, the songwriting halls here in Nashville, and, and they've usually graduated up to the upper tier. And uh, so they usually come in with really good music. A lot of times you'll find out what you think is a hit compared to the end of a project what, after you've realized the music. It's not the hit. There, there are hidden gems there. So I think the, 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 what, I, what I'm saying is that you have to start the process. You have to start making music. I mean, it's really a sad thing if, you, if we think we can cut this down to some kind of algorithm. And, and that's what the business would, would love for this to be, right? We, we know exactly what's going to happen. A, B, C, D here. You have this artist has sings this good. You get this writer right with them. Then you get somebody like me to come in and record the songs. That is a recipe for, for success. It doesn't always happen that way. And usually there are sleepers when you record these records. Songs that emerge in the studio, something that nobody would have ever thought would, would possibly be a, a contender. That's the, that's the unspoken, that's the mystery of all this stuff. So there is the agenda of a record label and, and management, and it's all good. It's, you know, how else can the business run? But there's the reality of the way this goes. And that's the part that I'm involved in. And it's, it's just, you get in there and you start making music and it's, you don't know how it's going to go. That's the way. Needless to say, since you've been doing this, this business has gone through a wild transition with first file trading, now ultimately streaming. This has affected a lot of people's recording process. So how has it affected you, if at all, 
in terms of how much money and how much time and where you record the records? Luckily for me, I, I'm, I've been in the business long enough to where I can set certain terms as far as budgets go. Um, the process of recording, I, I pretty much do what I've always done. The business is being streamlined. You know this. Everybody now is a producer, right? Everybody with a laptop. I'm a dinosaur, I think, if, if, you were, if we're categorizing me as far as the way I'm, I make music. I'm not, I usually don't write with, with artists. But as a matter of fact, I never write with artists. What am I saying? I quit writing when I quit my band. Everybody's a producer with a laptop. The demos that come in are, are staggeringly good, right? So why, does, why would an artist need somebody like me at this point? Uh, I ask that question all the time. You didn't ask this question, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of circle back kind of to what we were talking about. There's something that, that Bob, in our age group, we got to experience musically. It's 70s, right? 70s, 60s, 70s. There, that was a renaissance of music. It preceded machines. It preceded a, a culture in the record business. It was still the wild, wild west, you know, and, and, with that, there was an innocence and there was a fearlessness in making music that existed. And I think it really fostered some of the, the, the great pop music of all time. And uh, at this point, I think artists, young kids are, uh, speaking personally, they, 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 they want to feel a piece of that. I'm a bridge to that. I'm not a laptop producer. I still deal with live musicians. I think that's not the only way to make music, but that's, there's, there's certainly something in, in sitting in a room with other people. There's, there's, you can, you can't replace that exchange of ideas with, with, with sitting in front of a laptop. It's, it's, I'll keep coming back to this, this, the two words, there's tension and there's mystery to it. You don't want, know what's going to happen next because it's not just your mind. It's everybody else's mind. So it's a reaction. It's, there's something about that, that process that is magical in making music. Anyway, so we live in a business. Your original question was how, how is this all affected now with the transition to streaming and whatnot? <clears throat> Basically, I think streaming is the greatest thing for music because again, it's, it's pushing the boundaries. It's saying that the funnel that we go through is not small. It's, it's huge. And, and as much as radio has been a phenomenal instrument in, in getting music to people, there are gatekeepers that, that are involved in that process, and, and there's too much power. The democratization of, of music through technology, has, I think, has been a wonderful thing. It's confusing. Um, <clears throat> it allows in a lot of mediocrity, but it also allows a lot of people to have control over what they do. Um, record companies are playing catch up to that. And, and I think the, the first round of their decisions are to say, let's just get, they call it content, which is a, a pretty spiteful word. And I hate that word. It's just, it sucks. It's not content. It's music, right? They want the, there's an insatiable appetite for music now, product, content, that's a problem because there's a lot of mediocrity. You can't just make great music quickly. Sometimes it happens in a flash. Sometimes it happens over a long period of time. I'm kind of the moderator with the projects that I do on that process. Dinosaur, yes, but 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 we're going to find a core to that music 
that that the artist feels like that they're saying what they want to say. Record companies got to take it and and do what they got to do with it. Sometimes it works for them. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes this this new process of just spitting out these demos, disposable music that works better for them. I can't I can't be the answer for all of that stuff. Hopefully that that answers a little bit of your question. I'm sitting there now. No, no, that's a lot. No, it's all good. But let's go back to the nuts and bolts. So you say yes, you've met the act, you've listened to the demos. How much is the budget that you propose and how long does it take you to make one of these records? The budgets that I get, I guess, can I talk about some of this stuff to you? I, I'm trying to think. I'm I, I don't think I'm supposed to to talk about ballpark my... because every deal is different. How long does it take him? Is your budget a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, two hundred thousand? You know what? That's it's a great question, and this is an honest answer. Even though I I, I preface it by saying I, I don't know if I should talk about it. Uh, the truth is I don't one hundred percent know because I have a guy that does it, and he, usually he just he he's been with me for twenty five years. Uh, I know it's I know roughly to track a song in Nashville with you know musicians here union musicians that i use will be somewhere up from 20 to 25,000 dollars just for the the expenses and i think that's mixed so what 10 songs and you're talking about what 250,000 dollars right generally speaking are you making albums or does sometimes somebody come in and they want one track or a few tracks for the most part Gladly, I, I can I can say that it's it's mostly albums still to this point, or what do they call collections now? Right? It's more than it's more than eight songs, so it's a body of work. Okay, so you have your eight songs. How much time do you need? Varies. It just varies. Cam Marlowe, I'm work I'm, I'm working with now. He's sing he's singing live on the tracks, so I'll comp his vocals if they need to be comped from these live tracks. That saves me weeks of doing vocal overdubs. We've determine this record is going to be really simple. There's not going to be a lot of overdubs after the fact. So that, again, it, some records take the, the, the I'm, I'm trying to think. I just did a record with it with, with an artist named Kane Brown, who's a wonderful new hybrid kind of artist. I don't know if you know that name. Yeah, I do. We've been working on this record probably for a year off and on. He tours all the time. So it's not straight work. This record that I'm working on right now, I'll probably have it done in six weeks. So they're, 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 none of them are the same for me. Well, let me put it the other way. Look at it from your perspective. You have a schedule. How do you schedule all this stuff? Well, that's a million-dollar question. It used to keep me up. Tw 20 years ago, it kept me up at nights. I, I discovered Ambien, right? That was, the only, that was the only answer for me at that time. It just does, Bob. I, I don't, I don't, you know... And sometimes you have to say to people, you have to say, look, it's going to take me a little bit longer. You have to wait. That's the beauty of being a senior uh, in this business right now. I don't take advantage of it. And I don't, I don't, I, I'm not heavy with that at all. Um, I have a wonderful re relationship with most of the label heads here. They're all my age. And they know that I, I, I'm not going to dick around with them, with, with their money, with, with their schedules. I will meet deadlines. I just want to know what the hard deadlines are. And I, and I usually, I mean, I, to this date, I'm knock on some wood around here. I've, I've never uh, not delivered on time. But as far as scheduling, I, I mean, to this day, I don't have an assistant. 
I, I'm I'm one of the holdouts. I, I it's too much work to have an assistant. So I do have a production assistant who keep pays the bills and does all that stuff. But that's it. It's just me. It's a mom and pop shop here. And I and I actually do a lot of records. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. So there's seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day. How much are you working? Less than I did 10 years ago. But I'm, I've been hitting a lot of Saturdays lately. I will say that. Normally, I, I've been married 40 years. So in music years, that would be two, 200, right? Right, <laughs> at least. Sherry and my wife, my, my girlfriend, since we were 14 years old, she's not in the music business, and that's probably why we're still married. But I decided a long time ago, well, I'll tell you a great little little story about, you mind me, a little anecdote about Los Angeles. We just moved out, I think it was 82, 1982 or 1983. We'd been married a year. I got out there, was lucky enough to get in the fast track right off the bat. I was living my dream. My The only thing I want to do is play guitar. About a year and a half, two years in, Sherry, I'll never forget. I know where I was sitting on it, on which chair, which house we lived in. She said, hey, Dan, I love you, but I'm going to move back to Nashville. She said, 
this is not really me. She said, we still stay married. I love you, but I would see you as much as, as if you came home to Nashville and visited once every two months. <laughs> and, and that was a, that was a real warning. Right. And so I, it, my life has been one of balance. I've raised three kids and uh, now I have grandkids, but I did, I did find out early that, that like I used to do 12 hour days. I'll put it that way. Something suffers at, at, at every point of your life. If, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, doubling down on work, your family's going to suffer and you got to make that up. So it's, it's just a constant balance. But right now I'll say, I like to work. If, if I have my way, I like to work between the hours of, uh, I'd be 11 and six kind of bankers hours for a musician. Now the past is history, but in retrospect, did it require that much work 12 hours a day to achieve the status you presently have? And were the sacrifices worth it? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be around what I would consider greats at every facet of my recording career. And yeah, it does, it does exact some, some flesh from you. And there's no way to get good without your 10,000 hours. So was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it. I think there's some other things that I, I might have been able to accomplish had I given a little bit more, but it, that was also wouldn't have been worth the cost to me personally. Okay, so let's go back to the studio. You mentioned earlier that you have your regulars, players in Nashville. Do you tend to use players on all the records you make, or is it ever the guys in the band, they're the ones on the record? It, it, it's it's really whatever an artist would like. And there's some artists that come in like they'll, and they'll, they'll have a, a, a particular musician in their band they know can cut it in the studio and they'll say, would you mind using them? I, I love that. Problem is I've, I, you know, I, I always maintain that I have only so many ideas, so you have to change the cast or else it's going to sound like the same record all the time. So how do you find new players? Just asking around, just asking around. There's, there was a new player that I, I was working with today, a guitar player in Nashville. He's a, and he's homegrown. I, I can't believe that I've never hardly met anybody in Nashville who's homegrown. This guy, he's the age of my oldest daughter, and his name is Chris Donigan, and he, he's just uh, on a tip from an engineer who I've worked with for, for for 25 years. He said, "Try this guy out. He he sounds exactly like what you're looking for. A bit irreverent, but he's knowledgeable, and he and he plays just just on the fringes." And and I I said, "Okay, great. You know, and that's it. He's locked in for life now. He doesn't know that, but he's locked in for life, whether he likes it or not." But, but truth, I mean, truly, you, you have to work. One of my heroes in life is Mutt Lang, and he was the guy that talked me into being a producer. Wait, wait, he taught you one-on-one, or he taught you because you listened to the records? Both, both. I mean, it's the greatest honor. When I got my first call to play guitar from Mutt Lang, I, I, that was it. I mean, what, what else? Okay, well, 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 a little bit slower. What was that call for? The first call that, that Mutt, it, uh, actually, I had moved back to Nashville. I was playing in, in a band called giant right by the way thank you for those more than kind words all, all heartfelt all true yeah but that's i mean that was that was sweet you know so and this you know you're gonna have to tie this narrative because i'm jumping all around i'm all i got it map. all i got it all in my head just keep going okay great we had moved back i thought i was gonna be a rock star <laughs> moved back to nashville to raise my kids be closer to extended family. Well, let's just stop for one second when your wife sherry said i'm gonna move back to nashville what happened then 
Did she move back? No, no, she didn't. She no. It's just I. I had to. I had to remember that I was in a relationship, and I, you know, you have to cherish the things that you love. I was cherishing music, right? I was giving, and I just had to make sure that I I balanced that, and I did. And she, she, it makes her sound like she's a heavy. She's not. She just she's just honest. So and and quite honestly, the best music critic too that I've had because she's not a musician. She she doesn't give rat's ass about how much hours I put into a guitar show. It's like, does the song speak to her or not? So anyway, um, we're back in Nashville. We're raising kids. I'm, I'm going to be a rock star. So I thought this is right before giant tumbled. And, um, uh, Mutt Lang wanted to cut a record in Nashville. He, he, he's loved. I found out he loves, uh, Nashville. He, he was cutting a record on his ex-wife. Her name is Stevie. And um, so he hired a bunch of Nashville musicians. And so it was not a rock record, which is bizarre because I was not a country musician. Anyway, we got to know each other and our, our relationship extended far beyond that. And um, I watched him work in, in various capacities. And, and that guy could bring water from a stone. He had no fear. He would lead you to the musical promised land, whether you, well, though you'd always like it, it was all on him. And yet he had such a profound respect and a desire to hear the ideas of all the people he worked with. And it really had an effect on me. And I've worked with some phenomenal producers. I mean, you know, I mean, you, there's no way you can call one the greatest. There's no greatest. But I would say he's one of the most profound musicians I've ever worked with. We can argue whether people are in his league, but he's at the top. I mean, it just, it, uh, I, don't have a, I don't have enough vocabulary to, to say what I think about Mutt Lang. And as a person, too. It's just, he's the quintessential music maker. That's just it. So I'm looking at this guy and, and, and also just honored to be part of, of, of making music with him. And he was the one who said, you're a producer at heart, Dan. You should, you should drop the guitar playing and produce records. Well, you didn't want to hear that, but what, what did he pick up on? I'm assuming, because I haven't really asked him, but, but well, I, I'm a, an arranger at heart. An arranger. So, so the, it's, it's like I've always liked making records to, to, to if you're a mu- musician, you're a subcontractor, right? You're you're hired to frame the house. You're a drywall guy. You're a plumber. Whatever. There's a certain artistic bent to each one of those those disciplines, shall we say? And a record producer is just the, the general contractor. He's he may be a he may be a woodsmith himself, uh, you know, I mean, or a plumber. But but he it's his job to pull the whole thing together, and and it's his job to make sure the house is built. That's what a record producer does. And um, he just, he, he noticed some things about the way that I related to the way he produced. And he probably thought, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm projecting, that he thought I would be a natural at doing that. And he was the one, um, he didn't get me my first gig, but I was actually producing um, a Megadeth record here in Nashville. In the early 90s, it was my, my manager of Giant, Bud Prager, who got me that that gig, he he thought I'd be good to work with Dave Mustaine. At the same time, Mutt was producing Shania Twain at that time, and I was playing on those records. And um, they were hanging out with Faith Hill, 
It was a huge star at that time. And Faith, it, it, was, it was just kind of like a drama. You know, her producer was her fiance and they split up. So she just didn't want to continue that, you know, and, and I understand that. And, and she was looking for a producer and, and Munch and I were, were with her. And they said, well, why don't you try Dan? And she, she'd never thought of that. I, I was playing on her records because I was living in Nashville at this time. And I, you know, I was supplementing my income, my rock income with playing sessions again. And so that was the first thing. And, you know, I mean, if, if Mutt Lang suggests you, somebody's going to listen at that point. And there you go. And that was the beginning uh, of, of kind of my production in Nashville on country music. And the irony is that Mutt Lang... You know, his greatest rock producer, you know, one of the greatest, whatever you want to call him. He was such a student of Nashville music, of country music. As a matter of fact, when he, when he, we, we were in England working on a record and he, he asked me what I knew about an artist named Shania Twain. And I said, I don't know that much. I mean, I've heard some music or whatever. She's, she's gorgeous or whatever. That's about my, the extent of what I knew about her. I saw her on videos. And he said, well, I fancy her. And uh, I said, that's great. So I'm, I was working on some record with him in, in England at this time. And, and he said, he said, but you're not going to play on it. And I said, what? And, and he said, uh, you don't know anything about country music, <laughs> <laughs> which is so true. I didn't. And even though I was live, grew up here in Nashville and I was living back in Nashville, I didn't know a damn thing about country music. Funny thing was, I got a call one day. And it was, I think, the second day that he was tracking Shania in Nashville, their first record. And he, he said, I, and I won't even attempt his South African accent, but Dan, you fancy coming down and having a play, is what he said, having a play. And I said, I, I said, I thought you said I didn't know how to play country music. He said, yeah, well, I just want your wrist. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? I just want your wrist. So, yeah. Okay, but Mutt, you know, if we talk about the old guy, because everything is different now. There were producers that were, you know, in the 60s, they worked for the label. Then everybody went independent. The producers were mainly people leaving Nashville, which is a subculture unto itself. But if we're talking about rock, the producers were sort of A&R guys, and they would also work with the music. Then we went to an engineer producer. When you're an engineer, you learn that you're subsidiary and you don't make waves. And therefore, when they make records, it's harder for them to speak up with their ideas. Yeah. And what I'm leading to is Mutt is a unique guy because in South Africa, he started doing sound-alike records. You know, before that they came to South Africa, they would record them. They'd have them for a couple of weeks and have the hit in South Africa. So this is a guy who can do everything. Yes. He can write. He can sing. He can play, okay? And there are not many people who can do that. So how do those elements come across in the studio? You know, he, he, he writes, it's almost like, um, it's like he, he writes on an acoustic guitar. You know, it's like, you know, he's like, a, he's a hippie is what he is. He's just a, he's a beautiful hippie. And um, music has to work from an arrangement standpoint, from a melody he, and he, it usually has to translate on an acoustic guitar for him, must, whatever his influences were. 
And he has, he usually has an idea when he comes in. I mean, it's not always fleshed out, you know, a full demo, but he has an idea. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's an arranger. Again, I'll come back to that. I think that's really what, what great records are made of because when you go back and I'll, I'll just deviate for one second, you go back and listen to forties and fifties, you listen to those records Quincy was making any big band record, right? I mean, they were, they were doing these records with, you know, two, three mics. That was it. And it, it's all the arrangement. It's all relationship oriented. That's the way Mutt makes records. It's arrangement, it's it's melodies, rhythms, the way sounds are all orchestrated and arranged. They fall together. It's not just a blob of music, and then you you find a way to. to I'm, and I'm using my hands here. Great for your for your listeners, so they can't see a thing. But but it's it's not about moving faders up and down. If a piece of music doesn't doesn't sit logically. Like if you put all your faders flat on a board, if it doesn't sound great that way, chances are you don't have a great record. That that's what that's the crux of Mutt Lang, as far as I'm concerned. Everything when when we down to the point of okay, once he's got a drum track and a bass track, right? That's got to dynamically, musically, arrangement wise, flow with the song. You're playing something as simple as an eighth note part, ching 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 ching. Okay. A lot of producers, that's over in five seconds because it's such a obligatory part. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, come on, what is that? With Mutt, that's everything. It's slow motion. Every note has to relate to that kick, snare, and hi-hat in a certain way that makes every one of these notes sound large and to the, the, the best that it can sound. It's not slop. It's arrangement within an eighth note part. And that doesn't mean that it, like if you were to put it on a computer screen and on a grid, that it would line up exactly. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for it to fall right behind each one of those so that the duration of each note makes the drums sound bigger and more rich, richer than, than, they, than they sound. So if you, if you start there and then zoom out, everything that he does, every note that everybody sings has to have that relationship to the next thing. And that's why his records sound so damn good. Does that make sense at all? Does oh, that make absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But trying to dig in a little deeper, you were saying when you make records, you're not an A&R guy. To what degree, since Mud has those skills, you may not have worked in the studio with him when this happened, where he said, no, we're going to rework the song or we're going to rewrite the song. No, no. I, no I, then then I, 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 I didn't make that clear. I, I, I've been around, you know, popular hit music. So, so everything is an A&R uh, uh, involvement. I don't like to go in and like for a lot of Nashville artists, if they don't write their own songs, you would go to publishers and, and listen to songs. I would rather an artist. I, I, I am lucky because I get to work with artists that usually write their own music these days. As a matter of fact, last, I said the last 15 years, almost, almost every artist that I work with either writes it completely themselves or they co-write, you know? And, and so I, you tell me what you want to record. You let you have a conversation with the label about what songs they think are going to be hits, right? Then I'm going to accentuate that. I'm not interested in that part of the process. Now, once it comes into my hands, then I'm then I'm all, all hands on for all all of what you would call A and R at that point. We're trying to make these songs the most impactful they can possibly be, i.e., sound like hits. I just hate that language about talking about hits. But you want something to be impactful, so that if if from that A and R perspective, I'm 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 a hundred percent involved on the record, and we 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 rework sections. 
ad sections. I mean, if we have to write it there on the spot, it's fine. I'm just I'm just not interested in in doing a, a label ANR's job as far as starting from scratch. From here's eighty tunes, and let's cull this down to ten, if that makes sense. Okay, you're in the studio. And you say, okay, this song needs a bridge, or we're going to start with the chorus. Are the acts ever resentful? And frequently you have more success than the act. So what's the vibe in the studio? It's all in how you explain it. I mean, it's it's relationship, right? It's and and that's predicated on respect. I mean, I think you you have to earn that. You don't demand it, you know, like I, you know, I as a matter of fact, I, I quit. I, I took down all the, in my studio here at the house, I took down all the uh, plaques. It, number one, it sort of reminded me how old I was. <laughs> right? It's, it's like, uh, yeah, that was yesterday, right? And so the more you think about that, okay, it was yesterday. And I don't want some new artist, or, or it doesn't matter, an old artist, to walk into my studio and see, this is who I think I am or, or, you know, who, who they relate to needs to be me at that moment. And I have to earn their trust and their respect. And so most of the time, at least my experience, these artists will give me, they'll be deferential enough. Some of them, I have to tell them to quit calling me, sir, which drives me batshit crazy. But, um, it's a trust thing. It's like, I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm, I've am I'm. been around the block enough. I'll, I'll tell people right off the bat, look, you're going to see, you're going to see some of the limits of my creativity here. You're going to, you're, there's going to be some things I say that are just absolutely off mark. And I'm going to, I'm going to fall on my face. If you can grant me that, I'm going to grant you the same thing because part of finding this this thing we're looking for, whatever exists out there that we're reaching for, doesn't come with, doesn't always just happen. And we can't let our egos dictate, you know, it, it's not about being cool. It's about being effective and finding that thing. And so, you know, anything you say, you're the boss, number one. And, you know, this artist that I was working for today, what, he's he's 24 years old. He's he's ultimately the boss. It's it's his record. It's his face. It's going to go on this thing. I'm going to go on and do other records past this point. So I got to listen very intently to what he's saying. And if I hear him 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 say an idea that I don't think is going to work, I have to discipline myself to not just say no. No, that won't work. I've seen that happen. Here's here's another good thing about being a studio player for for decades. I got to see great producers. And I get to see really bad producers. You, you, it's like classroom, you know, what doesn't work. The one thing that works is, 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 is respect, you know, and, 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 and when you give it, you usually get it. Today, I tried a couple ideas that absolutely that just suck. There's no other way to, to, to do it. It's okay. We ended up finding it by the end of the session, right? The song, the track came out fa- fantastically, but it became, it became that way because the artist was willing to trust me to go down a few rabbit holes. I thought one thing was going to work. What absolutely ended up working was something that none of us thought was going to work, but it would never have happened had we not tried some of these stupid ideas that I had. So that's it. And, and circling back to Mutt, uh, 
Mutt, I noticed, never panicked when you hit a dead end in the studio. Um, and I and I and I experienced it a lot of times as a musician. You know, that that horrible feeling like this this is not happening. And people are starting to look around and and you know, it's like, what do you do now? It's it's not happening. And I've been in a couple of situations with more than a couple of situations with producers who you know, it's, it exposes them. If they don't have an idea, well, you know, what are you going to do? Well, the next thing is to blame somebody. You blame a player. This fucking thing doesn't, you know, it's like, come on, do something. Mutt Lang never went to that place. It was just, we're going to get there. Hang hang with me. Let's just, you know, talk about a bar. And so I, here I enter, I enter my production world with, you know, the monkey of all monkeys on my shoulder. It's like I've worked with Mutt Lang and I know it great is i'm not anywhere close to that but do you see what i'm saying i mean it's like absolutely absolutely you get to that point you go anything that i do number one i'll never reach that level but but that's how that's that's the way to conduct yourself making music and at least you have to have that kind of credibility once you see it and experience it you can never go back so when you hit a dead end what did Mutt do or what did you learn from Mutt to do? Take time. Step away. You know, it's like it, it, just beating a thing into the ground is, 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 is pointless. Step back. Get a different perspective. Go have a meal. Go have a cup of coffee, whatever. Step back. Look at the painting from another angle. Turn it again. Keep looking at it. All of a sudden, if, I mean, this is not rocket science, right? I mean, we're, we're not, we're not. This is not Bach. We're doing pop music here. There's a there's a limited scope, and if if you you can find that, if you just, I mean, number one, if, if you're around people that are proficient, I hire really good music, musicians. Most of them, I think, are way better than myself. Just give that a minute. Something's going to come up and present itself. And like I said a minute ago, it may not be the exact answer. It may not be the exact route, but it, it may be something that 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 takes you into that that area that you'll 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 see what the final answer is and the solution is. Patience is the main thing. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. What were a couple of your bad ideas today? <laughs> I got to think back. I can't remember it. Luckily, I can forget all that stuff. There was a, after the first course, there was, uh, I was well onto this idea that I, I hate making just music that's predicated for the radio. I was on a rant about that. You know, it's like, what am I saying here? Radio has fed my family all these years, but um, we need to double that up. We need to take time with this thing. And we, we ran it and the artist's, Basically, at the end of the song, we did another take. He said, I, I just think that sounds way too long. And I said, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. But, well, you know, just that it, the really bad ideas have been reserved for modulations. I grew up like in Barry Manilow. So I always like all that, that dr- dramatic stuff. Now, if you could talk about the 80s when there was unlimited money, they would be in the big studio. They get a drum sound. They build it. They cut the basics. How do you do it? Hire great engineers. I hate waiting. And you know that great drum sound. Here, here's here's my take on it. Like, there is no the best. I'll just say that right. It's all relative to to the setting that it's in. Right. You. I remember listening to a police record. Those sounds were great because they were predicated on the band itself. You listen to Van Halen. Totally different thing. It's predicated on Van Halen. Oh, here. Okay, great example here. I remember playing on a on a Patty Smythe record in the eighties, and the Ron Nevison was the producer. Talk about a history and a list of credits. The other guitar player was this little known guy named Eddie Van Halen. Right? <laughs> Haven't heard of him. Yeah, yeah. And and <laughs> when when he mentioned that Eddie Van Halen was playing on some tracks, I almost I I almost just soiled my nappies basically. I got to the studio, and the, the only thing I cared about was hearing what Eddie Van Halen did because I was such a massive fan, right? And Ron pulled up the tracks, and he was playing me some stuff. <clears throat> and you could tell that it was Eddie, but it was interesting because he didn't turn the guitar up like anywhere close to the the volume that he that that it would have been turned up on in a in a power trio, right? Van Halen, it was it was Eddie's guitar drums and then bass so the bottom end was even it was even subservient to his guitar sound well on this it was big drums big loud bass and then eddie's guitar in there so it was eddie because you know if you if you worshiped him slash studied him like i did you knew it was him but it was not the same experience it was the same sound 
when you soloed it, it was, there's Eddie Van Halen. Contextually, right? It was it was less in volume and, and the elements that were around it were not the same. So it was a different Eddie Van Halen. So that what we what everybody calls the brown sound related differently to that setting, right? That's that's the world of production right there. That's that's everything. It's everything is related. It's like what I was talking about a minute ago in arrangement. It's the way that it relates to the the next thing. So if you set your bottom end, your drums, your bass a certain way, then the guitar sounds to really poke through and be effective have to cut through from a different standpoint. Eddie Van Halen's guitar sound was this massive beast. It was a it was a, a whale of a sound with all this bottom end and, and this girth that didn't relate the same way in the setting that Ron had had, had queued up for for this Patty Smythe record. Mutt Lang, by the same token, would take little guitar sounds that in the context of, of a record like that would sound massive, but if you soloed them, they were these much more, they weren't miniature, but they they didn't have the, the, the girth of an Eddie Van Halen sound. So when you say, how do I do records? I get a great engineer. I try to be specific about the direction of the sound that we're going. And because I'm a guitar player and I make a lot of guitar sounding records, I can dominate that conversation i hire a lot of guitar players that it's you know they we we have a camaraderie and we can speak we speak guitar talk fluently do you work with the same engineer or do you want to mix it up or what's your philosophy there i like to mix it i have to mix everything up because again if i because of the 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 amount of records that i do it would it would be boring very very soon i have a I, i would say that i have four or five engineers that i like to track records I'm a little more limited on the on the mixing. I I've gone back to a, a, an engineer named Justin Ebank. I don't know if you know credits from Nashville, but if you look at him, Bob, uh, it's it's staggering. He he's a Chicagoan that, that came through the whole jingle thing and moved to Nashville. I met him <clears throat> when I uh, did my first Keith Urban record, and we haven't been apart since. I do have other mixing engineers who are great and and not, but. Justin and I seem to really have a kind of just a language and, and he, he is, he's a musician and uh, it, we just make records a different way. Same thing on, on the guitar players. I have I, about five in each instrument. It seems to, to me that, that uh, I kind of gravitate towards. Okay. So let's just assume the engineer gets the sound in the studio. How do you like to build the record? Do you start, you know, you ever make a record with a whole band in the room or you always start with a drum sound? I, I make records usually with a whole band in the room. That's that's what people tend to want me to do. They want a live situation. You know, even if we have a lot of like what I call pre-production or, you know, tracks that we have to work with, they still want that feel of a band. That's usually what I do. So, you go in and you get basic sounds from each instrument. And the guys that I hire come in with an arsenal of, of, of equipment that's that's top-notch, right? So you, you know you're getting great sounds. It's not like you're hiring a band that don't have instruments and you're having to rent amps and all that kind of stuff. So, and, you know, I, you know, I like it that way. It's not that I won't use studio musicians. As a matter of fact, sometimes when you hire people who don't play in the studio and or just live musicians, you get you get a different flavor. That's great. Do I have the same amount of patience that I had 
20 years ago? No. Am I as interested in doing bands? No, I'm just not. You know, it's that's that window has closed. Not saying that I wouldn't do a band, but sitting endless hours in a studio just trying to get a decent drum sound or a decent guitar sound. I'll leave that to some, uh, you know, some younger folks. Okay. Do you read music and do your studio musicians read music? I read poorly. Uh, always have. I'm a guitar player. Uh, as a matter of fact, I almost didn't move to Los Angeles because I thought that you had to be a much better reader. And luckily I had a guy said, nah, they'll, you can, you can fake it. They, they want you for your ideas. Um, in Nashville, it's, it's, have you heard that number system that's used here? No, explain it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's music theory is what it is. It's, they, people think it's this weird thing that they, it's just basically if you have a scale, right? If, say you're in the key of C, you have C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The one chord would be a C chord. The four chord would be an F chord. The five chord would be a G chord. There you go. The sixth chord would be an A minor chord. If you're, it's music theory, you know what I mean? Without going into it. So the way I understand it, I'm not real big on my music uh, uh, history in Nashville, but acts would come in and record. They were, it's a touring, uh, pub, basically publishing town. Acts would come in, they'd do the records on Mondays and Tuesdays, and they'd be out on the road the rest of the week. So there was not a lot of pre-production. So, you know, if you're doing a song, if you write a chart out, say in the key of, of uh, a singer would probably sing it in D flat, right? Well, the singer comes in, they want to sing it in E natural. If you're looking at a chart and you're looking at a D flat and you're having to play an E natural, there are musicians who can do that wonderfully, but guitar players, not so much. You know some who could, but but for the most part, they so they developed this thing that's it's it's a number system. Basically, wherever one is, that's your key, right? So you're not looking at chords, you're looking at numbers. So if we're in D flat, one is D flat, right? That's it. And 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 then you know, five is A flat. Well, you want to move it to the key of E. You still got your number chart. One, there's E, five is B. I don't know if that sounds more complicated or not. No, no, especially if you do it every day. I, I get it yeah. completely. It's an alternative system as opposed to reading notes on the staff. For me, I just memorize stuff. I mean, again, it's it's how hard is this stuff? It's like you listen to it once or twice and you got it. To each his own, I would say. There are some musicians that I work with that will come in and they will they will write out the the actual chord symbols. And and some musicians that I work with that that prefer not to read at all. You know, just, it's just whatever, whatever it takes to get to that point. I'm not a real stickler on it. Before mixing, how do you know when a track is done? Instinct. You know, I mean, that's pretty subjective, right? I when when you take the mantle of the producer, it's when I say it's done. You know, and then and then I turn to the artist, and go, you think it's done? <laughs> it, it's it's. We know nothing still. That's that's the beauty of it. it. It's a humbling job at any juncture. It's just anybody that says they know this shit is they're full of shit. I'm just telling you that. You 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 take your best guesses, right? People pay me for my best guesses, and somebody's got to say when you stop. You talk about comping vocals. You pretty much do that on every record. I'm hands on. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's the main instrument on the record. So. Yes, I, I look at the voice like like 
it's an it's an instrument. Everything's an instrument to me. So I'm listening to the sound of the voice, the way the the, the way the, the the vowels and consonants sound, the way the rhythm against the track, the the tonality. There's so much into to a human voice, and so I comp based on that, based on the way it sounds to me. Most artists that I work with really like the way I comp vocals. I mean, it's personally, I would rather not have to, to have to do that, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's a recording when people say, you know, people he used to drive me crazy when I play guitar solos. The first thing they would say, the, the GIT students, right? How many takes to take to get, get to that solo? I said, what does it matter? It's a recording. It's like, did you get what you wanted to say? It's like a painting. You don't ask a painter how long it took him to paint something. Is it is that what you meant to say? Vocals are that same thing. You can sing a song a hundred times and you're going to sing it slightly different every time, right? My job is to figure out what's the most effective. And I, I, I tend to hear vocals as instruments. Do you ever leave the mistakes in? You know, sometimes things can be comped to the degree they lose humanity. So, so true. I, I, I guarantee I have erred and made more mistakes than that. The greatest thing that I ever had said to me early in my production career, again, the monkey on my shoulder is, 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 is the presence of Mutt Lang, who I, uh, you know, just holding such a high esteem. I could never make records like that, but I'm trying. And it's, he's right there. He would laugh at that, right? But he's right here on my shoulder. I was working with Keith Urban, who is a brother. And we we really came up through the ranks together. I owe him a lot. But there was a story that we were we were doing a record and and uh he got really angry at me. He heard this comp that I did. He's, and he goes, You make me sound too fucking good. And I was I was so I was, it didn't compute. And this is how dense I was, right? I didn't compute. Well, excuse me for making you sound, he said, great. I don't think he said good. He said, too fucking great, whatever he said. It took a while to realize what he was saying. He, he wanted the tension. He didn't, he didn't want it to be perfect. He, he wanted to feel like it was going off the rails. It was a. It was probably this one of the most single singular moments in my production career that meant more to me musically than than probably anything, and it's affected me. So to to answer your question, where I've landed is tension. You want to feel music that makes you feel like you're you're. And this is hard to do, and I don't do it all the time. I said so this is my aspiration, right? So, because you'll hear some of my the music I've made and go, "You've missed the mark." It's the aspiration. You want to feel something that is both known and unknown. You want to feel like you're 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 on a track, ready to possibly go off the side of the track. You don't want to be so safe that there's not a bit of mystery and and danger to your to your to your journey, right? So. In comps, yes, that's true. I mean, you can you can make vocals sound too perfect and they're boring, right? You also have to, you're also answering to an artist too and what their threshold for how they want to sound. So in a perfect world though, I like the yin and yang of 
of it, of of the impact and of, of something being great and yet there being a vulnerability at the same time to it. And again, subjective. None of this stuff is is something that we can objectively say, yes, this is the definitive answer here. I mean, you're in your home studio now. People can't see that uh, listening, but do you cut all in one room or you just got basics in one room and then you go to another room, which is cheaper? How do you do it? I record bands downtown in, in Nashville and proper studios because they're set up for that. You know, it's easier. You get a bunch of people. I'm, I'm in a residential neighborhood here. So in my studio, I have a great vocal booth. Actually, the, the control room is a vocal booth in, a, a, in and of itself, too. It sounds great in here. So they can either stay, be in a vocal booth or they can sit here in the control room with me. We put on some headphones. I have around me, you know, guitar player. So I have all my guitars and amps here. I have all that stuff here, keyboards. So so I, I go go down like a, a, on a typical record and, and record, say, if we we've say, let's just say 10 tracks, for, for example. Take me five days, six days to get that, the, 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 the basics, the structure of the record tracks. I then take a hard drive from that to, back to my house. And then we do vocals here. I do my guitar overdubs here. Incidental overdubs. A lot of times I have some, some harmony background singers who, this is a beautiful uh, introduction because of technology. I'll, 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 I'll call them up and Doing background vocals sometimes can be like watching paint dry. You know, if it's just harmonies, it's like, you know, I got a great singer. Hey, I need you to sing the third above, maybe a little bit below part here. Do this here, do that. If you have some extra stuff you want to do, I'll send them over the internet. I'll send them, you know, the the tracks and 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 bounce down and they'll send it back to me. Then I'll critique that and we'll 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 be more specific and we'll get it that way. It saves me a little bit of time. But yeah, I'd say I'd say 70% of making a record I do here at my house. And as far as the studios you cut basics in, is it always the same one or you don't care? Nope, don't care. As a matter of fact, uh, again, it's just, you know, if it's got decent equipment, I'd rather not be in the same place. I mean, there's some great studios here in town. But, you know, I've been in studios since I was a kid. And it's, I've never, uh, studios never made a hit record. You know, okay. So your mixing engineer does he have his own room? He does. Okay. How involved are you in the mix, in the process? Or do you say, take a whack at it, then let me hear it? By the time I, I send him what I've what I've landed on, it's in a pseudo mixed state. Um, in in I work on Pro Tools, and so. I want it to sound, it, it's the, it, to me, it's like taking a Polaroid. I want it to be that concise. I want it to be almost the thing. So when I send it to my mixing engineer, he knows 100% of my intent. And, he's, and, he, and he gets, it's not like, like in the old days where you send a tape and, and you have to pull up faders. Okay, well, here's the kick drum, here's the bass. When he pulls up a session, he he's hearing the last thing, the way that I the 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 artist has signed off, the label signed off when they hear the the rough mixes. So it's in a what I would call a a more than a rough mix. It's 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 a it's it's a it's close to a mixed state. It's submixed, I should say that. And then then yes, with 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 the guy that I mentioned, Justin Niebank, he always has he knows he has 
the freedom to mute things, to to change, to do, you know, I want I want his take on it. I want his reaction to it. But but it's not like it's a blind reaction to it. He knows pretty much where I'm what I'm thinking about at this point. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time your time not just to go back to school but to come back and move forward with purdue global purdue's online university for working adults start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu okay quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep obvious but with higher expenses on materials employees distribution and borrowing everything costs more so to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Okay, so he mixes alone. He sends you his mix. How long does it take to get to a final? Sometimes he gets it first take. It's staggering how good he is. There are other times where it's it's great. We just went through something. The artist signed off on it. The label signed off on it. But I still had quite a few things that that I wanted to try. So we we then went to a, a proper stu- studio downtown. We I guess we could have gone to his house, but we went somewhere in Nashville. And we sat for three, four days and we just, we just made moves like, like kind of the good old days. And we had a great time, great laugh, just hanging out together. Um, again, it's that collaboration. It's, it, it's, it's the things that you don't know that you're going to do when you're sitting, listening in a room with somebody else, listening to the same thing. We do uh, a lot of what he calls living room. He likes, he, he, he likes to turn on a mix after he's been working on it for a day. He turns it on very low. He listens at a very low decibel level and he'll sit in the back of a room, almost like there's music playing on at a party. 
and we'll just listen to it and eat lunch or just talk. And more things come out from that configuration than sitting in front of uh, speakers and being just absolutely dedicated to listening to a mix. And we just, we, we, it's basically, you just fudge around with something until it's like, well, I got nothing more to say about it. And then we're done. You know, what about mastering? I, I got a guy that I've worked with for years and, and I, I can truly say I've only been up to gateway one time up in, uh, up in, uh, Maine, Maine. Yeah. And Bob was one of the great rock mastering guys. Well, there's, so I, I started using him and there's a, he's so busy that I, there's a guy named Adam that worked for him, Adam Ayan. I just started sending him records and, and he sent me back his first, you know, his run throughs. And it's like, well, that's done. I'm not going to go up there. <laughs> and it's the most perfect scenario. Again, there are other great mastering places. Sterling is staggering. You know, it's like, but, but by and large, it, he's, he's like a, he's like an automatic and, We've done enough records together. It's like very seldomly do I hear something go, ah, it's once in a while I'll say, hey, back off the compression a little bit. Or maybe it sounds like we, we got cocaine highs. You know, it's like it's, you know, it's a little bristling on the top end. But no, I'm looking for as many ways that I can. It's not re reduce the workload. It's just to re reduce, uh, to, to pinpoint where I can be most effective. And just sitting in a mastering studio after I've worked on a project for months, Mixed it. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you a gearhead? I don't know. If you saw all the guitars and amps, I mean, to some degree, I'm not a collector. And I used to, put it this way, I used to shoot out mics every record. You know, we bring in an artist in and you have 10 mics out there in the studio from the rental company. And they'd sing a verse in the course of each one. And then you sit there. And I realized that 99% of the time I chose one mic. And then I heard a story about a friend of mine going down to a hip hop studio down in Atlanta. He wanted to go into the mic locker, you know, where you get, choose all your mics to record. And the guy said, yeah. He said, we got a mic locker. And he showed him to the mic locker and he opened the closet door and there was a mic. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and it just went ding, 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 ding. So I found the, the mic that I like to use. I, I just, I like a 269. No, I'm in 269. I found a, just a premium, just tweaked old vintage mic. And that's the mic. You know, will I use an SM7 or if, yeah, I use whatever. If I go to other studios, yeah, use whatever they got. I got this great mic. And of course, a lot of the artists that I go, you know, that's the, now it's the mic, right? But just, it's the mic because it's the mic we have up in the studio. And it's the same, it goes the same way across the board. It's, there's a certain point you can sit there. I've sat for so many hours. I've wasted, I think, years of my life waiting for engineers to try different compressors, which it's so infinitesimal. I gotta, I gotta feel the difference. I, I, it's if 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 I have to strain to hear a difference, it's not different, right? When you're mixing, shove a fader up. Don't 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 type in point two decibel, right? I mean, there's an argument to be made. I'm not. I'm not. No, I am dissing it. I'm dissing it all. It's just, it's, there's, you got to feel the impact. And if the sound doesn't really change drastically to where you can feel it, hear it, it's, it's, it's a moot point. So gear wise, I feel that that's the way I feel about all gear. I, I have great gear here at the house, but I'm not going to sit there and have 15 different preamps because I lose is because by the time you've gone through it, you've lost the muse, right? 
I used to watch singers just glaze over. By the time I got through to the mic, there's the mic we're going to use. They were they were kaput. They didn't want to sing. Okay, I can see in the video Genelex. So are you a Genelex guy or you really don't care? They're they're here. They're great. I know it's a horrible thing to say, right? No, I mean, you made the choice. Some people say Genelex are great. Some people say, this is my sound. This is what I want. In the old days, there were the NS10Ms. You know, I like these. I like these. You can, I like, I mean, what I really like is these little things. They don't make these are called NHT pros. Okay. And I used to have them even closer. I had them stands that literally it was like, they were like almost earphones, but not earphones. I listen really quietly. Just, I don't want to lose my hearing. And plus you can't hear when you play loud. So I listen at a level that's uncomfortably low, but I like to have the speakers close to my ears. So you hear the bottom end. And I, I don't know how I got those, but I, I just like them. And, and it, the main thing is that you just know what you're hearing. You know, it, it, the speakers don't have to be great. That You just have to know exactly what you're hearing and how that relates to other sound systems. What's your view on analog versus digital? I love analog. I just hate working on it. It's just, it's, it's pain. If, if, if I have a pro- project to where we're going for a thing, right? And we're, and we're not, we're not dealing with all the X's and O's of programmed percussion, all that stuff, a grid, analog's great. If you have, if you have a, to me, it's like, like, you know, like, you know, when we were kids, what we had the, the crayon box that had what, eight? They had them with like 32. I never had one right. with a little uh, sharpener in the front. Right. And sometimes there's a reason for having the 32, but sometimes it's great having an eight, right? And you limit the, po- the the options. I love that. At first, you could hear a big difference. There, The the technology has been around long enough and the engineers are, are so good that, that it's hard to tell the difference now to where it, it matters from an emotional standpoint musically. So it's not an argument, to me, it's not an argument what's better. It's what's, what, what's, what more facilitates your workflow at that point. So you referenced earlier country music today. So what's your, uh, this is where you work, but what's your take on the music? It's, it kind of became the, the receptacle of what rock was from the 80s. Well, I mean, I remember Tom Petty, I saw him once, and he said it, he called it the country music of the seventies, the rock music of the seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 where I can survive, right? <laughs> it's no, it's it, it's a big tent. Having lived now the the majority of my life here, I've 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 come through the back door in, into an immense appreciation and respect for country music that I didn't have when I was a young buck growing up here. Like I wanted to have nothing to do with it. There's a real rock and roll component to old country music. That's great. I think there's some wonderful new country music that's being made. That's just, you know, it just, it's, they allow a lot of, a lot of differentials now that didn't exist when I was a kid. You know, and you'll and you'll you'll go and 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 you can listen to from a from a Chris Stapleton to a Kane Brown record, you know, to a Keith Urban record, to a you know, just you can you can go down the list, and it's, it, it, yeah, it's 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 it, the nice thing about 
I will say that, I'm, and I'm not, uh, you know, it's like there's no better place. But I happen to live here, and, and and so you you tend to be able to see the 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 good points and the flaws, right? The good points about uh, the strengths of Nashville is that it's still wrapped around live musicians, and I think that's a real plus because that's being lost in a lot of er- other areas, right? Certainly not the only way to make music. It's not the way you make great hip hop music. It, it it can't be right. But so this is a place. This is a thing. It's a it's it's a piece of the conversation, and and I think that's the the wonderful thing about country music. Um, if you like, you know, for for me, I didn't grow up with bluegrass music. I didn't grow up with real whiny kind of, uh, you know, what I would call whiny country music. Of course, somebody that would be fighting words for somebody else. But that just wasn't my culture, right? Nowadays you can do this other kind of hybrid and, and still be a part of the conversation. And so I think that's the, the, the wonderful thing about Nashville. And, you know, there's always going to be a corporate side because the, the business exists to make money. I mean, if, if you can't make money, you know, it's, there's no business. So that's when you're, you you balance that art versus commerce thing. And that's, that's never going to be a conversation that, that anybody's going to come up with a, with an answer that, that, that satisfies everybody. But overall, it's it's a good thing, and I never thought in a million years that I that I would be that guy. As a matter of fact, that's what people say. Yeah, Dan's the country producer, and I thought I was a rock guitar player. <laughs> you know? Okay, in the last twenty five years, with all this digital change, what do we know? We know the country audience went to streaming before the rock audience. We know the paradigm of radio being the be all and end all. Is not the case anymore, even though it's very important. Can you feel less of a stranglehold from the traditional systems? Is there an evolution in the overall business that's allowing growth in what kind of sounds and pushing the envelope? Yeah, it's 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 predicated on streaming, right? It's it's it it was all it was all through the funnel of radio and hits and and being able to control hits. Now we 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 don't control what hits are anymore. You can control what radio hits are still to some degree, but that's not the music that's moving the masses, right? You have a real-time way of, of a barometer of, of, of finding out what people care about. And that's exciting and, and, and terrifying at the same time, right? You can't control it. Right. It's moved on. And country music, is, you know, is, is, is coming to that realization. Um, yeah. And I think it's great. I mean, I, I, I had my buddy, Randy Goodman, who runs uh, Sony Records, great dear friend of mine. He told me, as a matter of fact, on this, this artist, Cam Marlowe, he said, look, don't, don't, don't go cookie cutter on this thing. Just make music that can, that makes Cam excited. We'll deal with the rest of it. Just something, you know, if, if we need something to be called, pulled in for radio or whatever, we can address that at that at that time. Basically, chains are taken off. Just make some music. Do something that's compelling, whatever the hell that is. I like that directive. That's that's it's great. Once again, in your video, I can I can see like ten guitars. How often do you play guitar? As much as I can. When I produce, it's really hard for me because because I am a guitar player at heart, and I just it's like, you know. <laughs> My my vision goes to the guitar. The world comes through the guitar. I cease to listen to a singer. 
I forget that I'm supposed to be directing something. I do play on tracking sessions sometimes because if it's the best way that I can communicate, um, I didn't play today or the or last Friday. And two great guitar players, uh, Tom Bukovac and Chris Donigan, they were staggeringly good, and and I it was better for me not to play. I will overdub after the fact um, because there's certain things that we didn't get that I know that need need to be done, and it, and I'm a different personality. Um, a record that I just played on, I I every once in a while I like to flex those old muscles if there's a, if there's a, a reason for it. And the '80s are kind of coming back around, Bob. These days, it's 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 a something I never thought would happen. But I have some of these younger artists saying, "Hey, can you play some of that stuff?" Yeah. Well, you know, I have to. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Slow down. Tell me more about the '80s coming back. All of a sudden, it's like everything comes back around, right? And the, some of the values of the '80s. It's like for we've been in a, in a uh, how do you describe it? It's like a uh, a harmonic and guitar drought for the last 15 years, right? Right. When the 80s ended, I mean, it it, it, it it extended far beyond maybe what was necessary and, uh, you know, tasteful. <laughs> it was it was gymnastics, right? Right. I listened to some of the stuff I played in the 80s. It was like, I, it's just, I'm embarrassed, you know? But that was, that was it. That was the culture, right? So, you know, the nineties came in and, and, and definitely dealt with that in a, in, in, in not too friendly of a way, <laughs> humbleness all right. Right. And, and, and that's evolution and that's the way it goes. And, but there was, there's some, there's some things about the eighties that we, you know, if we're all honest there that still resonate. Right. And there's something about that guitar thing and not just playing simple melodies and droney type things. There's about having that facility to, to like a violinist, you know, flares and, and, and maybe an eight bar solo as opposed to these freaking four bar solos that have been going around for the last 10 years, you know? And so an artist that I was working with, he said, you know, I want you to play that stuff. I want you to play it. <laughs> and it, you know, so the, the funny thing is, you know, I don't play every day. So, you know, I used to play 10 hours a day, right? That was, that was my life. And, and so you got to work back up. It's like, it's, you, yes, you know how to ride that bike, but it's not the same thing. So yeah, I just finished some stuff. I played some solos that I'm pretty pretty proud of. Are they self-serving? Hell yes. They're totally self-serving saying, yeah, I can still do this stuff. Uh, they serve the music, so everybody's happy, most of which would be me at this point. Just know I can do it, but I love it. Yeah, I love playing guitar. So you grew up in Nashville. What kind of circumstances? My dad was a, a string orchestrator string arranger. So music in the family. My mother was a pianist, but she chose not to do it professionally. She had the chops. She was a really good classical pianist and uh, grew up in Nashville. He was involved. He started in, 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 in he started the onset, uh, onset of Christian contemporary music. Didn't exist before those years in the seventies. And I wasn't so much interested in that as I just wanted to go to sessions. And I, I got to go with my dad when he would do rhythm sessions in the seventies and see like the greats. I don't know if you know the name Reggie Young, people like that that played on, I mean, countless hit records, legends in that. And these guys would just take me under their wing and let me sit next to them and watch them play in the studio. That's all I cared about doing. I didn't want to be a rock star. I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to be a studio guitar player. I think since I was 13 years old, I didn't, but 
But when I found out what, but I met David Hungate. You know, the, you know the name David Hungate, right? Of course, from Toto. Yeah, just base extraordinaire. And he he had moved to Nashville, which is I I, I was always wondering why he moved to Nashville. <laughs> All I want to do is get out at that time. And uh, this he loved it. He's a Midwestern guy, and he but he told me when I was nineteen, I was playing on a, a record with him when I was nineteen, and he said, "Yeah, if you really want to make it, you know, as it, you really want to say you've made it, you got to make it in L.A." And, and, uh, and, you know, he played in a band with a guy that influenced me so freaking much. I mean, Steve Lukather, uh, you know, it just, it's like, what can you say about how great he is? He's, he's a couple years, my senior, but it's like, I listened to him and I heard him play on records in the late seventies and he was, you know, a teenager. It's like, that's what I want. You know, and I saw, <laughs> I saw what Steve wrote on a vlog. He said, yeah, Dan copied me. Hell yeah, I copied him. Absolutely. You're going to copy the best, right? I mean, that's how you get work. There's no there's no shame in that. It's That's what you do. And I would never embarrassed to say, I, I thought he was one of the greatest of all time. You know, is, period. You, you, you can't look at Steve and go, that he has not affected so many guitar players. Me being that, I'm, I'm the beneficiary. I'm just glad that he quit playing sessions when he did because it gave, it, it was this massive, like, 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 cavern cavernous void that 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 i got to be able to step into and be a part of i wasn't the only guy by the way okay you're growing up uh how many kids in the family three and where are you in the hierarchy i'm the oldest and the smallest but i'm the oldest my brother dave uh you know if you ever listen to giant records he was uh the drummer and he's just great and my youngest brother by the time it came to his he said screw this i'm gonna go in a different path too many musicians in the family, but he's very musical ear for him. What was your experience going to school? Good student, bad student, popular? I went to a sports school. I was an athlete and they had a horrible music program. And so it was always that tension, you know, I had great parents. I, I, I hit the jackpot, hit the lottery on that one. And they, they, they just said, look, you know, life is about, if you can't, my, my, I'll put it this way. My dad knew I was I was a musician 100% through and through. He he pushed me in all the other areas. He said, look, you got to keep working on your ath ath athleticism and your academics because it's going to affect everything. At some point, you're going to have to make a choice. If it's music, it's music. But don't don't shut those doors yet. So high school was fine. All I cared about was we had a local college here called Belmont College, which is now Belmont University, which is a big deal. I had a studio. As long as I kept my grades up, um, my my friends at college would come over and pick me up after baseball practice, and I'd go and sit in the studio there and play, you know, from midnight until six in the morning, and be just obliterated the next day for school. But as long as I kept good grades, my my parents were 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 willing to work with me on that, and that's where I learned to be a studio musician. And you graduate from high school, and then what? I went to work for a on the road for a guy named Bill Gaither. Bill Gaither Trio. They were Christian music. They were a trio, and they were playing uh, arenas. They were some of the best people I've ever met, continue to be to this day. Absolute integrity. Not the music I wanted to do, but I was able to go. I went to school, a little bit of college up in Indiana, and I, I'd tour on the weekends and made a living. And that lasted about a year, year and a half. I came back to Nashville, went to Belmont College, had my tuition 
paid for because I played in a band that, you know, went out and played gigs for the college. Got married at 21 and uh, moved to L.A. So you never finished college? No, about a year and a half. And what'd your parents say about that? N- nothing. They didn't. They, 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 those, those, the doors were closing, you know, there was, there was, the doors were opening and they knew that that was the inevitable. I'm sure they would have loved it had I gone to college, you know, as, as I would love for my, and the funny thing is, Bob, my, my youngest kid is a touring drummer and I was a great drummer. He did the same thing to me. He, a year and a half into college, he, he said, dad, you're, you're wasting your money. I got to go on the road. And I had no other answer. I said, yeah, you're right. You got to go do it. If you got to do it, would I rather you have a degree? Yes. But that's just not going to happen. How'd you decide to get married so young? If you saw this woman that I met when I was 13, you would have gotten married at 17. <laughs> she, she's my soulmate. I mean, she's beautiful. She's, she, she is as beautiful as inside as out. I mean, that, that sounds like a cheap shot. No, I, I, it, I loved her. I just loved her. And that was it. I just... It's one of those things. I mean, you don't always get right. I mean, I, you know, I mean, people say, how do you keep a marriage? I, there's so much luck involved here. This is, but, but it's kindred spirit. We lucked out. We met each other and we, you know, we, we have the same kind of view about life. Yeah. I was a kid and she was willing to, to move out to LA. Figure that, you know, we moved out there. No promises, nothing. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. So at what point does the band Whiteheart come about? That was between college, marriage, and me moving to the West Coast. That was a Christian band. And, uh, you know, I was raised you know, in a very evangelical setting, my parents weren't, weren't heavy on the dogma. They they were, they were pretty free thinkers. There was also a lot of great Christian music happening in Nashville. I mean, this was, that was the cutting edge music, I think in Nashville, you know, um, when I had a chance to move to LA, I, I just (laughs) unceremoniously quit my, quit the band, you know, so I'm gone guys. And they all thought I was, you know, moving to Sodom and Gomorrah, I guess. And, but Sherry was, was up. And so, no, I, 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 that was it. That was, that was, that was Mecca. It was all I wanted to do was play on records, you know? So to what degree is religion part of your life now? Well, that's a, that's a large question, right? Religion. I don't know about religion. I mean, I, religion's extremely important. Uh, spirituality, I'd say probably would would dominate that. Um, I borrow from a lot of different religions, right? Well, let's put it a different way. Are you a churchgoer? No. Okay. There's a value to that. I mean, it's not that I don't like church. I, right now, I'm, I'm getting more from 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 different authors and, and different thinkers. So, no. You know, there's no criticism involved. Just when you hear someone played in a Christian band, yeah. you always ask that. But let's go back to the beginning. Was guitar your first instrument? And how did you get into playing the guitar? Can I be rude for a second? Yeah. Not to you. Not rude. But can, no, no, can I uh, just, you said something that, that it, it, it's just about that, that, I, that it interests me that I just want to remark on. Yeah, yeah. The the thing about the thing about like, like, like I say, I don't relate to evangelical Christianity, especially these days from a from a political standpoint. It, it's it. Some of it's repulsive to me, it, it, and yet the the irony is that is that life is so complex. You know, I mean, like you don't like people that irritate me. They also have the good side, right? Religion, any religion. But I, I was raised in a, in the Christian faith. I mean, I'm here in the the South, the Bible Belt. So, no no surprise to that. There's things I love about it and things I hate about it. It's kind of like family, you know. And you and you, I I luckily had parents that that really were very encouraging to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think, and and you find things in it that are, that are, that are useful that are beautiful and the, and the, the some of the ugly stuff you just go eh, you know whatever you call it for what it is and but but religion or spirituality plays a a, a great deal in my life it plays a great deal in, in music because it, there's a balance to it all it's, it's you can't separate your life out. It's, i'm not just a musician i'm not just a husband i'm not just a dad now i'm not just a granddad I'm I'm a guy who's closer to death than not, <laughs> you know, right? I'm closer to diapers. Oh, believe me, I know. We all go through it. Right now, this life matters, right? Uh, do I have any certainty about another 
extension life. No, I don't. And but the religious component still plays something because because it, it talks about values and things that matter. So that's that that to me is kind of how I view all that stuff. So I it's it's not as simple of an answer of of whether I go to church or not go to church. You know, it's 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 in how I view all that stuff. It's 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 evolving too. I mean, I'm I'm what I hit I'm hit hitting sixty two this year. So I'm not the same that I was ten years ago, twenty years ago. Certainly not when I was twenty in Los Angeles. I was this green freaking kid who was playing rock guitar on the, all these records. But I I was just off the boat of Christian contemporary Christian music. So can you imagine how the the the, the utter lunacy of that? You know, I'm, I'm I'm walking into cocaine, you know, haven, you know, it's like right. it it just it was it, it's something that a movie, it would be too boring a movie movie to watch, but it's it would be a great humor, 30, 30 minute humor show. So anyway, sorry. I hate to go off. No, of that, no, but it, it's okay. Expanding, you wanted to be clear. Yeah, it's just, all, it's just all, it's all. I don't, I don't have any great answers about it, but I, I do have a lot of patience with the process because of what I said about the inevitability. My I friend, guess you know, I don't, I don't want to extend this too far. It's just, and con- contemporary Christian music is a big ten. Uh, it's just when someone is involved in it, you ask to what degree are they involved in the dogma? Yeah, which you were not. No, there's no prejudgment yeah. there. But when someone is part of me, because I certainly know people who are involved in it or very heavily into the dogma. But I think we've covered it. So, did you start with the guitar? Yeah, that was it. I don't. I, I have no idea why that came up. I, you know what? Probably because I went. I was at. It would have to be because of church, and my dad was a at that time was a. He led the music at church, and there would they'd have these folk bands, right? And the guitar, it was the guitar. So I saw these guys playing guitar, and that was it. I thought that was cool. So how'd you start? With an acoustic guitar, you know, playing chords. You know, I took down at a local music store here in Nashville. It was when I was 13. My dad had a friend. His name was John Darnell. He was a studio guitar player in, in Nashville. And he's still a dear friend. And he came over one night, gave a couple hours of his time to a 13-year-old kid, showed me some scales, and I was hooked. That was it. That was that was like, that's where I'm going with this whole thing. 13. To be that good, you have to practice a whole hell of a lot. That's all I did. That's that's all I did. I mean, literally, 100%. Going back to, you know, my wife, Sherry. So this is, it sounds very Southern. I love the sound of this. I always tell people I married my sister, just, just to confuse them. But no, sure. I met Sherry when we were 13, right? At 15, I was so in love with this girl. I was in love with the guitar, in love with this girl, but the girl was just, and my parents actually, since I was their first kid, made me break up with her. This is beautiful. You know, they were, they were just worried. I, I'd, I'd probably get pregnant at 16. You know, they they would, that would be it. Right. Whatever. But, but yeah, it was, I would, I would play 10 hours a day. That's all I would do. And to the point I would irritate my coaches would have, they'd call my folks in and say, you know, what's this guy doing? You know, that was my life. I was a good pitcher and, but I cared more about guitar. So I'd sit in my room and just, and crank up my amp and play. I'd turn on records. I, you know, I remember, you know, I heard Larry Carlton's first solo record. I mean, these things where I was like 15 years old, Asia by Steely Dan. I heard all those guitar solos. It's like, 
What else in the world is there to do but learn this stuff? Okay. What are some more of your influences? And when did you start? You wanted to be a studio musician, but did you start playing in bands in high school? I had a friend of mine, Gordon Kennedy, who is a son of of, of, of country royalty, uh, Jerry Kennedy. He was he, he, great producer and a great guitar player, studio guitar player in the 60s. We did little bands. We played it kind of in our high school, but that was... No, it wasn't. It wasn't to be a band guy. It was. It, we would. We had a great music teacher. We had a, a horrible music program at this sports school, and he said, "Look, if you would, if you'll keep your grades up during during uh, what do you call it, study hall, you guys can take your guitars and amps, go down the hall as long as you don't make too much noise and just practice." Because he knew that we needed time to do that. That's really what we did. We just. We just. We needle dropped on records. That's all it was. We would try to learn the the latest, whatever was coming out. Then it was it was Boston. For me, it was Al Demiola, Elegant Gypsy, the first record of note that he came out with. You know, never heard a guitar player play like that. Steely Dan to Jeff Beck. I mean, Wired. You know, I mean, blow, blow by blow. By the time Wired hit, I think we were 16. You know, so we're just, I mean, we're just, it's so rich. We're just, we're learning all this stuff. And then we'd play these little shows at our school, assemblies, they would call them. And we'd play these songs. Can you imagine the, you know, 13-year-old girls listening to us play Jeff Beck music, you know? No. But we were we were so into ourselves. But that was what we did for our whole high school career, basically. It was, it was phenomenal. So when you moved to L.A. to be a session musician, how many connections did you have or did you just go blind and how did you get work? Specifically, I had played on a, a Lou Rawls record here in Nashville. A friend of mine named Ronnie Hafkin, who who was f- famous because he produced a band called Dr. Hook at that time. You remember that, right? Of course. Cover of the Rolling Stone. There you go. Sylvia's mother. That's it. So Ronnie always wanted young talent. He got me to play when I was, I was probably 19 on a Lou Rawls record that he was producing in town, right? And then he went to overdub it out in Los Angeles. And there was a keyboard player slash arranger named Robbie Buchanan who heard it and inquired who the guitar player on this record was. And that was a connection. Ronnie Hafkin came back to Nashville several months later and told me that this guy, Robbie Buchanan, wanted to, you know, would could he have my name and number? Robbie was doing all the big records at that time. This was in the early 80s, and he said, you should move to, to Los Angeles. And it shocked me. And I think that's when I said, I don't read music that well. He said, that ah, doesn't matter. So I, we just moved. <laughs> we just moved. We got back to our car. And what happened? Well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's weird because it, for about a month, nothing. And then the phone started ringing off the hook. And and one thing led to another. Well, I, let, I, I go back a little bit. Before I moved, I there. this was in the day and age when they had, they still, they had, uh, uh, what do they call them? They, they, people would do the hiring on sessions. I can't even remember the term, but they would, they would, they would put together rhythm sections. And I, I told this fellow that, I, that uh, I said, just book me in a session like like I live there. I'll take care of getting there. And he did. And one thing would lead to another. L.A. fed off young new talents. And as I said, there was a, a void there. 
And uh, so I would I would load all my gear onto a plane's back before they checked the 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 luggage or anything. I'd load two amps, a pedal board, and three guitars. Pay a porter twenty bucks, ship it to L.A., get off the flight, rent a car, put it all in there, and take it to a studio. Do one session, come back to Nashville and do demo sessions. So I would probably lose a couple thousand dollars each time. I didn't even know I could hire a cartage company to move my gear. <laughs> Finally, we said, this is enough of this. We moved to LA, got a session here too. You know, everyone, you know, but, but I mean, I just moved to town. And then about a month or two later, the phone started ringing and it just, it was exponential. Were you networking? Were you working it? Or were you just waiting for the phone to ring? No, I didn't know how to network. <laughs> it, it's, it's a mystery, Bob. I mean, honest to God, I've had people ask me and it, it just, it doesn't make sense. Is Was there a tremendous amount of luck in my career? Yes. Did I deliver every time? Yes, 100%. And it was just, it was the absolute perfect time to move to Los Angeles, to be a guitar player who had practiced all that I had practiced, who knew kind of what to play when. Steve Lukather had abdicated this key position and the world was looking for I would say Steve Lukather Betts. So how many years did you do that? And what was that lifestyle like? It was um, probably end of 82 to 88, you know, was that six years? Just, it was usually three sessions a day, three, three hour sessions, sometimes more. And it, it was fast and furious. And I was, I was in the fast lane, right. And, and gawking most of the time at the people I was around but then you get confidence and you're, you're doing what you do. And I, you know, I was, I was good at it. And, um, and it was about 88, I would say I, you, you start to go, well, maybe there's more, you know? And that's when I started fooling around with, we had a rehearsal band. I think Alan Pasqua and I had a rehearsal band with some writers. Uh, Tom Kelly was a writer and a singer, a great background singer. Denny Belfield was a bass player that was playing in it. I'm trying to think who was playing drums. I'll think of it in a minute. But it was just a rehearsal. It was, it was a rehearsal band. It was a, on a lark. We were going to try to get a record deal, right? And Mike, oh, Mike Baird was the drummer. That's who it was, Mike Baird. And we would rehearse at rehearsal halls. We'd just drink some beer and 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 play and, and do songs and whatever. And the material was okay, but but Alan Pasqua and myself, it was like, I I guess I don't remember it a hundred percent, but it wasn't scratching an itch effectively. And we just started writing songs ourselves. And I had sung a little bit. So we, on some demos, I started singing. And what emanated out of that was the beginning of our band Giant. And probably within the, a year, we got signed. You know, it was bizarre. And, but the idea was like, all these records we were playing on, if these guys can do this, hell, we can do this too. We had no... <laughs> No one tell us we couldn't, so we just did it. So we, it was a moonlighting. It was basically our way of having some fun. Before you go to the band, any memorable session stories? Everybody always likes to know the crazy stuff. There wasn't a lot of crazy stuff I because I, I wasn't Doesn't crazy. doesn't necessarily have to be crazy, just an interesting story. Or any great records you played on and maybe you didn't think they were going to be that great or something like that. Okay, in order of your question, memorable. The first time I got asked to a Michael Jackson session. It was memorable only because I walked into the studio. It was, it was at Westlake and you walk basically off the street into a, into a lounge 
and there was this guy sitting there that looked like he, he looked horrible. He looked, I mean, he, like he it was a wreck. He'd been living on the streets. And I didn't realize until and somebody was attending to this guy. And what I didn't realize until a few minutes later was they were taking off makeup. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way he could walk around the streets, right? And so I, I was just asking him, I said, what, what, what? It was a dumb question now that I think about it. Why do you do this? He said, well, that's the only way I can, I can walk down the street and go shopping. So he had some Hollywood makeup artist, you know, duh. That was, that was, you know, that was just stuff like that. I mean, I was, you know, I was a kid. I was about 25. He was making the bad record at that time. Any records you worked on you're specifically proud of? Yeah. Oh, there, there's one specifically. Um, my, uh, you know, we, it, it was kind of bucket list was to play for Boz Skaggs because I would think that those were some of the most in, uh, impactful records for me from, from a lot of musical standpoints. And, um, and I got this call from Bill Schnee to play in a Boz record. That was like, that was it, you know? And the rhythm section was Jeff Procaro and Marcus Miller and, uh, different keyboard players. I mean, it was like, who's who playing on this record. And Boz asked me to write some songs for it. Right. So again, I didn't have a publishing company. I didn't even, you know why I wrote songs with him? So I could write extended guitar solos. This is how green I was. I mean, seriously, I, I didn't know what publishing was. Probably just 24, 25. But I sure as hell knew how to write a, a section that I could blow on a solo, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it's just silliness, but it's it it it's it's true. And um we did this record. Oh, Peter Wolf was playing, you know, the producer, Austrian producer, was playing keyboards on it. David Page would come in. There was a song that we that I had written with Bob. I wrote three songs of them. And he wanted to record us. Great. And, you know, he said, well, who do you want to come and play guitar on this song? Steve, Steve Lugather. It's like, so I get to play with my, <laughs> my, it's like, I'm in a kid, I'm a kid in a candy store. Seriously. I, I just, I, I just didn't even know what to do. I was, you know, hanging out with Jeff Procaro and, and just the whole thing. It was, it was, it was otherworldly, right? I'm, I'm keep checking on, make sure I'm recording this. So yeah. And I, it was it was in the middle of the eighties, and music had changed then. And this was a pretty artsy record. There's some cool stuff on it, and this was the this was the time like the the hottest one of the hottest acts on the charts was Debbie Gibson. So that gives you kind of a a, a perspective, right? And the 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 label got this record, and oh, even Alan Holdsworth even played on this record. <laughs> right? I mean, so this is this is I mean, you know, just it's deep and wide, right? And uh, so this is my this is the greatest thing a young guitar player could be a part of. So, and I also had three songs, which I got to play some pretty badass guitar solos on it. And the label rejected the record, right? They dismantle it. And I remember even getting called from some other producers come and redo some of the songs. And it was so, oh, saccharine, you know, just, just, I, I, you know, again, my, my, my lens was only that of a guitar player. So I wasn't looking at that music business. I just, I just, it was, it was an abomination, right? The funny thing was this, this record is called uh, Other Roads. The funny thing was that the three most uncommercial songs were the songs I would have written with Boss, right? They made the record. So they exist there. And and 
to this day, that was probably, I would say that was one of the highlights of my whole career. I mean, of all the records, I've played on a lot of, a lot of big records, but that was the one that, that, that grabbed my heartstrings. Other roads. How'd you get involved and meet uh, Bud Prager? That's a little bit unclear to me. I, I can't remember exactly how I met him, but it was around when we submitted demos to, 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 to get to have a band that was signed i think the label put me in touch with them i think i can't re- remember so you had your deal before you had the manager i think bud's not around to dispute that how'd you get the deal i think through demos it's a little vague i don't I, well who shopped it somebody had to go to the label and say hey this is what i have great question that may be the mystery i may need to we may need to you know put an addendum to this i don't remember that's the honest truth oh, okay so you get a deal with a&M, and then somehow you get put in touch with Bud Prager. How did you decide to work with Bud? You know Bud. Yeah, I do. That's that's a that's a load. Basically, he scared the shit out of me, and, and and it was like the greatest challenge because on one hand he could tell you that you have the raw ability to do this, and using his, you know, and also basically be honest and say that you are nowhere close to your potential. That's the that's putting it in a very genteel form, right? But that's what that's what he sold, and his track record was staggering. He he was honest. I, I really and I really appreciate. I learned more about the record industry from Bud Prager than anybody. And I'd been in the record industry as a guitar player. I didn't know anything about it. And um, yeah, he was a great friend. He was a great friend, a great mentor. Um, and, and, and he was, uh, you know, he was just honest, you know I mean? There's certain things we were good as a band and there were things we were horrible and he would, he would identify both, you know? Okay. So you make the record. Were you happy with the album? That first record? Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. And you know, that was still in the, in the, in the AOR radio existed and it was a, it was a big thing in America. And we had put out this first single and, and, and the first single that we put out had a minute guitar solo that started the, the, the record and they played it in its entirety. And who wouldn't love that? You know, you I drive around LA and hear that thing playing all the time. And it's like, wow, you know, yeah, we are pretty good. You know? So what was your experience trying to play rock star? You know, I, I could, I, I was a pretty good singer. Um, By the way, I, <laughs> I absolutely what you wrote, by the way, the uh, you were you're very kind in 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 some of the descriptions about my guitar playing or musicianship, and I appreciate that. But what I really loved about what you wrote was was in the was in the area of of were you wondering whether it was because maybe the playing was pr- really proficient and sounded really good, and then you were wondering whether it was live or pre recorded, and then you said, and then Dan started singing. I, I busted a gut. I thought that was great because I was a good singer, you know, but I was not a great singer. I, I had a good range and I was convincing, but No, wait, 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 wait. Just to be clear, this is a big thing, like with the Super Bowl, whatever, about people are people lip syncing or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I will tell you in my particular world, if I say something is live and the experts weigh in, they'll crucify me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm wrong. Okay. No, but, no, but you were 100% you were so yeah, correct. But the point is a live vocal. I don't care who you are, a live vocal is going to sound live. Okay. Well, yeah, 
Uh, but okay, so so that was the contract. I didn't mean this as a put. I didn't. I can't. I'm not sitting in your shoes. I didn't mean it as a put down <laughs> whatsoever. Not whatsoever. It's just the guitar part was so faithful to the. The point is, I heard it the first time, thought it was live, and then the next time I was going to write about it. Well, I really better listen to it to see if it is live. And I'm listening to the guitar part, whatever. And then you saying, "Oh, okay, that's a live vocal." I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Okay, well, okay, well, thank you. And I take that point. Let's just say I'm a better guitar player than singer. So, but that was the- I, well, okay. But as I say, that was not my meaning at all. Well, okay, I, okay, I appreciate that. But I, I almost liked it better when, it, when I, 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 I interpreted it the other way. But, but yeah, we we did it. We did a record. You know, we started it in Los Angeles, and and we three songs into it, we decided to move to England and, and get away from our culture in LA. And it was the best decision. We worked with a, a wonderful producer named Terry Thomas, British producer. That's one of Bud's go-to people. Go-to people. Yeah. And it he was, was in the band, Charlie. Yes. Big fan of the band. Yeah. And, and you know, it was great. Answer to your question about rock star. I was, I was not a rock star. That was the thing. And I think that was very, pain, Bud was very painfully aware of that because how I, I mean, yeah, come on, you're, you're talking to me. You, I'm not a rock star. It's just to be a rock star. You got to be a rock star. I'm a musician, right? I could sing. We played really good. Um, but to be a rock star, that's a different thing. And I would find myself playing gigs and, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about guitar parts. I'm thinking about books that I'm reading and I thought, and I'd be thinking at the same time, I'm so not a rock star. I've been around rock stars. I know what a rock star does. And I'm not that that ringleader. That that I'm not a big personality who who just dominates an arena or a you know a stadium. That that wasn't me. So I knew it. I'm, I'm I was self aware enough to to know that. But our music was pretty good. So so we kind of floated on that for a while. Going to record number two things were changing a bit and I'll never forget. We cut a pretty good record. The second one, it wasn't as good as the first one. I don't think, but I'll never forget. We were mastering and, 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 uh, finalizing the record or mixing it in New York. And I'll, I'll never forget. We were up in the Sony building and, uh, I saw a video of even flow, right? Eddie Vedder climbing on that, whatever, that little theater. And I thought that's the end right there, right? Th- I never forget that because that, is very captivating. That's compelling. And that ain't me. I'm just telling you right there. That dude is not me. I got a lot of good things about, I mean, I, and I'm not, it's not like I'm saying it's, it's, this is not about self-deprecating. This is, I would want to watch that way more than anything else. That's, that's the difference, you know? So I didn't grow up wanting to be a rock star. I didn't study everything about the great rock stars, you know, Steven Tyler came to Nashville a couple of years ago. We were doing a record in this room. You know, we were in, that's a rock star. Oh yeah. He's one of the few who literally lives up to the legend. Most are disappointing, but not him. He's a rock star, whether he's on stage or he's sitting there in a room. Absolutely. That's a rock star. So, so I was not that. And so you, you learn this stuff. You know, I didn't realize that all the stuff that I was going through though, it leads you. Life leads you, right? You know, and all of a sudden you end up, I did learn about living on the edge week to week, watching your record on the chart, you know, and the, the, just what that takes out of you emotionally. You know, it, it, 
it's tough being an an artist, right? An artist, whatever you want to, an entertainer, because it's based on do they like me, right? Musician, it's just it, if you're freaking good at what you do, you're gonna find a place to plug in. When you're an entertainer, artist, whatever, you get a there, there's a there's a lifespan to what you do, and those gray hairs start coming, those pounds start coming on. There's someone coming up quickly and you're going to get your ass replaced. That's a tough place to be, you know, and people complain about how insulated performers are, you know, how, how self-centered they are. That's the only way to survive that world. So I learned a hell of a lot about what I would be dealing with later in life. I had no idea. I was going to school basically during that time. Giant was the best school. Of course, bud, God rest his soul. You know, I mean, because basically I'm saying he was the best headmaster I ever had. He would hate that. So how did it end? With a whimper. We were over touring in, I think it was 91 over in Europe. And it was just, you could just, you could just feel the winds of change, man. It was just, it was, that era was over. It was over. You could sense it in the room. We were playing, we were playing good venues, you know, and people would come out, but it was, it wasn't the thing. You know, the thing we were all turning our, our heads to were, were, you know, it was, it was all of a sudden it was, you know, these new bands that were coming coming out and 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 that was the that was the winds of change and you could say whatever you want if you're half perceptive you knew that was what was going to happen you know so you come back from europe everybody goes their separate way that's it pretty much yeah that was it you know i mean there was a culture change and i mean it happened over the course of what a year or so right but right it was pretty quick though i mean kurt cobain and 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 crew man they, they they talk about a wrecking crew. That was it. Talk about the eighties. But we what records were? They spend three quarters of a million dollars on a record to see if they got a hit. Right. They were making records up in Seattle for eighty thousand dollars, and they were great records. You know, you could sense where everybody was going. The record companies. You know, it just in 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 rock and roll. If if rock and roll is not offending somebody. You got problems. And by the end of the 80s, it was it was a corporate gesture, right? Yeah, the hair bands, et cetera. Was there anybody involved, Bud or the other members, wanted to keep going? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they're still making some records. By the way, Europe is, has got a, this insatiable appetite for 80s music, right? They're, they're st- my brother and Mike Brignardello, Mike is great bass player, great friend. They're, they're still making uh, giant records. They have, they have, you know, different guitar players and different singers and they're still doing stuff. You know, they, they, they I don't know if they'll ever want to tour. I doubt they'll ever go tour, but no, I mean, after our second record, no, it was, it was like, nah, time to pack it up. Okay. So how depressed were you about that? And how did you pick yourself up and make your next move? I don't remember being depressed at all. It was like, this is reality. I got kids to raise, you know, and luckily for me, I hadn't severed, you know, I, I, there was a bit of cachet that I, uh, that, that, that I had with my recording career and Nashville was ripe at that time to want to capitalize on that. They wanted something different. I was different because I wasn't from here in their eyes. So it really didn't change things. You know, I never, I never stopped being a session. I guess what it is, Bob, in some respect, I don't think I ever quit being a session player. I think I kept my day gig. So even when you were in Giant, you would play gigs? Yes, when I could, yeah. And and you know what? I mean, and you could look at that and say, well, you never were 100% in. You know, I think I was a realist. And I, and I, I don't know 
To some degree, I think that would be true. I, I don't think that I knew that, but I think uh, it, it, I don't think I knew that on, on on the surface level. I think intuitively, I I think I I had this gut feeling like this may not happen. So I I didn't cut ties with everything. The two top producers in Nashville are you and Dave Cobb. Dave Cobb makes a completely different type of record. What do you think about Dave and his records? Jay, and also mentioned Jay Joyce and Joey Moy. You got to mention those guys. They're they're beasts too. Okay. Um. I mean, but Dave Cobb, oh, lovely and great. Dave does. Dave does what I. I mean, it's just it's totally organic music, right? Right. At a top level. I mean, I do more of a mixed bag. I think on a, on, I think I would love to do that also. But what people call me for is 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 more of an integration into pop music and and then also into rock music. A lot of people like to tap into that rock side. So it's um we always want what we're not, right? So I, I I listen to Dave's records and I listen to I listen to Jay's records and I listen to Joey's records and it's always they always sound better than mine. I hate that. I freaking hate that. But I think we all do that. I think it's just you know it's what you're not. When somebody makes a cup of coffee, they it tastes better than the way I make coffee. I guess it just maybe it signifies you want to grow. So yeah, Dave's brought a, a a different sensibility into this town. The way he makes records. He's, 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 he just, he's just his own thing. I wish as producers, I wish we could hang around each other a little bit more. We're, we're all busy enough to where we, where we can't, but I would love, like when I used to play sessions, I got to see all these great producers work, right? When you're a producer, you don't get that luxury. You're isolated. So yeah, what I like to see and I, you know, I mean, steal some of their ideas. Heck yeah. I would love to do that. Okay, if you look at the big rock producers, they had their era and they were done. And they were done long before your age. Mm. So to what degree when you work, are you conscious of, well, you know, I got to have a certain level of success or they're not going to call me anymore. Yeah, you, I mean, it's you live in abject terror. You know, if you're honest with yourself, yeah, I'm, I'm, my expiration date was a long time ago. I, I this is a this is a really pertinent though. I I think it was six years ago. It, it, I'll use the sports metaphors. For me, it's easy baseball, right? You know, you're getting older, and 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 all of a sudden, pitches seem like they're coming in faster. And and it's not necessarily that they are coming in faster. It's just that you know, gravity, time, your reflexes slow down. Things seem faster, and that's how music was starting to hit me. Uh, uh, certainly six, seven years ago. And, uh, I had an artist, his name was Thomas Rhett. He was, he was kind of shooting up like a meteor, really fresh ideas. Great guy. Good songwriter. Great songwriter. As a matter of fact, prolific songwriter. Great. He came over to my house and, and said, I'd like you to, this is six years ago, seven years ago at the tops. I could be part of producing, but I'd like you to co-produce with this producer, Jesse Frazier. Jesse's a DJ originally, a songwriter. Great production ideas, totally opposite from mine. He's he's all in the box. He 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 draws music, you know. And I I heard some of their demos. I said, well, why do you need me? And 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 they they, they and I, and when I heard their demos, 
This is funny too. You love this. Background singer on a lot of the demos was Chris Stapleton. How do you like that? Isn't <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, how the world goes. So, so, and truly, I was being honest. I said, why do you need me? And they just, you know, just that basically, we just, what you bring, who you are as a musician, just come and jump on the ship. I said, sure. I talked to my wife that night and, and, and I, I, I can be honest with her. And I said, you know, I'm just, I'm, this was, I think I was mid fifties. And, and, and I said, you know, cause I'm feeling like, you know, maybe I should step out of this thing, just retire. You know, it's been good to me. I was trying to learn all the new technology, everything, just the way people did records. And it was, it was overwhelming. And I, and I, I found like I reached a saturation point and, and, you know, fear you, all of a sudden you become very vulnerable and, you know, you're used to being an alpha, right? You're, it's like, you know, everything. And all of a sudden you're realizing your mortality here, musically speaking. And, and she, and Sherry just said, she said, why don't you just be you, Dan? Why don't you quit trying to be what you're not? So simple, but it was like, I, 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 I was so looking in every other direction. And I thought, well, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So I started that, I started that, started to try to enact that in the way that I, I made music at that time. And I, and I tried to be open when I didn't know something. I also tried not to be the center. And, and so this co-production venture with, with Jesse Frazier basically revived me musically. And it was like, oh, I can make music again with another generation. This is a lot of times around the track. It can be valid, and not only can I contribute, but now I can also learn. But it requires a different uh, ego status, and I can't be the alpha at all times. I can be sometimes. I mean, but but not all the time. And and it was it was a whole, it was a whole new discipline for me, and and not not automatic. I will say that it it, it, it was some bumps, and and if I'm honest, there's still some bumps. It's 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 tough, you know, when you're successful. You want to be that person, you know, and, and, uh, but I think it's, it, it, it's, it's been the thing that's kept, it's like the extra lives and on a, you know, Pac-Man video game, right? There's, there's the old reference. And, and it's that humbling thing of, of going for full circle. You see music, not only through your lens, through the years you've been lucky to experience it, but you also realize that you don't own it. You, that it's owned by all. And, and you realize that, that, there are 18-year-olds who are coming up that have as much skin in the game as you do. And either you allow yourself to listen to that fully open-minded without this, well, look, kiddo, here's how it, went, it goes in my day. That's the, that's the beginning of the end for you. So I, I, I learned that. You know? So it's a balancing act every day. And sometimes I'll be honest, I, I, I come home and I, I, you know, I, have, I struggle with it you know, because I struggle with being in control. And I struggle with also the fact that if I'm honest, some of this stuff is just absolutely new to me. And I, I can't believe that I can't see it. You know, it's like, God. So either I go, I've learned something today that's, that's fantastic. Or I'm just a little bit more, not just humbled, but, but, but frightened by the fact that I don't know all this stuff coming at me. So I don't know if that's an answer to what you're what you're saying, but that's a great answer. But can you tell me a couple of things you know that you didn't weren't aware of or that you learned in this change in the last six years? 
Well, let me go, starting with one that 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 my insights are valid still to this day. That's a that was a big one. That, that in other words, the stuff we were talking about a while ago about the seventies and in the eighties. That stuff. New musicians are hungry to have access to some of that stuff, and they want people who were there. It's not just an exercise in history. They want to, to talk to, to people and experience those insights. Okay, that's one thing. But the stuff that was that was that was frightening frightening to me was the tech, technology. How you know we all hit our threshold of of, of what we're able to do technologically. Um, just even just even down to something simple like samples, programming, all these things. You watch you watch some of these young musicians on a laptop, and the speed with which they can process stuff is is foreign to me. And when you try to learn that, you're learning it. It's like you're an old dude. That's all. That's that's really what it is, right? So you have to say, you know, either I'm going to spend all my time trying to learn something that somebody's going to be much more intuitive than I am at, or you can just go, I'm going to collaborate with you. You do that and I'll do this. Jesse Frazier was great on the, I mean, what he could do on a laptop and drawing stuff. He didn't even know what the chords were called. His, the music he's making is phenomenal. I can also play, put a guitar on and he, and he doesn't know how to do that. It's collaboration. That's what it is. What are a couple of records from the last five, 10 years that you were not involved with that you think are great? Well, you mentioned Dave Cobb. I mean, I love his Chris, Chris Stapleton. So, I mean, if we, let's just talk regionally here. I mean, Nashville. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. I mean, yeah, because it just... It, it, That's what I meant. Of course, I would love to mention Silk Sonic. <laughs> I love that, that new stuff. Okay, the Silk Sonic, let's go into that. I don't think the materials as good as the execution. Yeah, I mean, on first bl- at first blush, I mean, it's just you're just listening to 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 these guys pay homage to to the greats of soul. I mean, and they do it at such high right. level. So I'm not even kidding. Again, this is a musician. I don't give a shit about the material at that point. I just care about the sound. You know. Okay. Well, definitely the sound is there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. I mean, like in like in okay in, in Nashville, since we're just local here, right? Mentioned Dave's records, I, Jay Joyce. I mean, some of some of those brothers Osborne records, some of the Eric Church records. I mean, he, Jay comes from a different planet too. He's a real indie kind of music maker. I, I just I love everything he does. I just I I turn it up. That's when I when I hear it, it's like if it's on the radio or if I'm streaming it, I just listen because I like the way he processes music. There's an there's a a simplicity and a and a almost a, a kind of a cold, hard indifference sometimes to his music that is a, so appealing to me, you know, like he's not needy. It's, it's got a fuck you attitude. And that's not something that I have. I'm a little more like, you like it, you know, Jay makes records that, that really appeal to me. Um, yeah, those are records that I really like. Um, and pretty much across the board, I will say that. I don't even know Jay that well, but I just, I'm a, I'm a fan. I just think he's great. Um, I mentioned, I'm trying to think, it's like Joey, Joey Moy. Do you know, you know, Joey, have you ever talked to him? Never talked to him, no. Canadian music maker, you know, he and he came through the mutt, he came through the, uh, God, now I'm, I'm, 
this is this is the uh, AARP forgetting names <laughs> of bands, right? I hate this shit. Um, Canadian Nickelback. There you go. Right. He came through that camp. That's a pretty tough camp, right? They made some hardcore commercial rock records. You know, and Mutt actually made a record with them, right? But Joey it, came through that camp and learned everything. He's a sponge. And, and he makes some records in Nashville that I think are stunning. Whether you like him musically or not, or, or, for, or for, the, for the content. Like, I thought some of his Florida Georgia Line stuff was pretty impactful stuff. He's doing this music with this guy named Morgan Wallen right now that's really resonating. So Joey's multi multifaceted, you know, and he and he's he's just a smart music maker. Um and yeah, I'll 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 turn his stuff up too. You know, it's like I'm looking for any new ideas, anything, you know, you've So what do you think of the Morgan Wallen double album? I haven't listened to the whole thing. I like Morgan Wallen. I think he's a really good songwriter. I like his... You know, forgetting the whole controversy and all that other stuff, there's a few controversies. The album, the double album's really good. Really good. People, you know, outside of country, it's one of these things where you listen to the record, you can tell why it's so successful. He speaks right to people. I mean, he, it, 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 he, he's not fabricating hit songs. He's, 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 he's telling his life. I mean, the funny thing is, I just recorded a song of his that he, he was one of the co-writers on, uh, Keith Urban and I are, are kind of resaddling and doing some music together, which has been a lot of fun lately because we've had a few years where we haven't made a lot of music. We made a couple singles and stuff like that. But we were doing a song the other day and I asked him who the songwriters were. And he said, you know, Morgan was one of the songwriters. It's like, and the alliteration, the it's like, it's poetry, you know? I mean, it's it's from a, I'm not a, you can tell I'm not like a, 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 like a full on Southerner, right? I, I, right. I've lived most of my life in the South, but my parents are from the North. So consequently, I'm a bit more of a Yankee, you know, but, but there's a heart to what he does that you can't help but be attracted to. So yeah. And those records that Joey does with him are as good as what he did with jo Florida, Georgia. Okay. But not only is their heart, there are good changes. Yeah. 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 No, he's, he, he's, he's a lightning rod, you know, and, and some of this stuff, I mean, it's like, uh, this other stuff got, I, I, for me, got blown out of, of context. I mean, you know, I mean, without going into all that stuff, it's just, it's, it, it's so PC oriented. You know, it's like, it's like, I love what, um, what uh, Trevor Noah said about yay, Kanye. I can't call him yay. But the other day he said, you know, he doesn't need to be canceled. He needs, he needs counseling. You know what? It's like <laughs> exactly. life. It's like, come on, come on, you know. Yeah, Morgan, Morgan, yeah, does he drink too much? Probably, yeah. But, I mean, come on. He's young. He got drunk one night, made a racial slur that he definitely shouldn't have said, but he apologized profusely. We got to forgive him. Give him a second chance. To take somebody like that and to judge because of one snippet, one night on somebody's phone, it's like, that's ridiculous. None of us would want that about ourselves, you know? So... I think he's. I think he's a. I think he's a, a a true voice. Do I agree with him in all of his in everything he says and, and acts? No, hell no. But I mean, isn't that rock and roll too? That is. Jeez. But you mentioned uh, Ye Kanye. Do you understand that music? I'm drawn to certain aspects of it, but but culturally, I didn't grow up urban, inner city. Right, right. I mean, that's not that's that's not my 
language. That's not my culture. Um, I, I hear certain bits of hip hop music. Um, and this is where, God, help me out here, Bob. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Super Bowl. Oh, was, Dr. Dre. Nope. It wasn't Dre. Snoop Dogg. Nope. Keep going. I love them both. I love Snoop Dogg. Um, keep going. Eminem. Nope. Keep going. Come on. Yeah, Mary J. Blige. No, I love her too. Keep going. The last one on the on the We're not talking about Fitty, Fitty said. Nope. Nope. Great. Okay, there's and there's Who else was on the Super Bowl? There was one I'm trying to remember. There was one more. And this is so embarrassing. He his his brand of hip hop music absolutely obliterates me. Not that I know the titles of his songs. And the, the embarrassing thing is I cannot remember his name right now. Okay. Kendrick Lamar. Thank you. Thank you. That's And my apologies if Kendrick and Lamar would ever hear this. This is massive apologies. Like for 61 white dude, right? Like when I, his, his music really impacts me. When I hear it, presentation, the cadence, the chord changes, there's a fusion with, with, with jazz music that, that really excites me harmonically with his music. Um, not all rock music hits me, you know I mean? So, so, so not definitely not all hip hop music is going to strike me, strike the same chord. Not all country music hits me either, you know? So, so it's just, you know, we all, we all gravitate towards a thing that resonates. There's, there's a, there's a tuning fork in our soul, right? And certain music hits that tuning fork, you know, that's what makes it interesting. Well, I really believe the tuning fork, but I, I'm checking myself all the time. And I say, well, if I heard the song 20 times, would I feel differently? You know, the way we did in the old days, you're driving around with the radio, you're exposed, you're exposed. Again, I can name umpteen songs I heard once and I knew it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's funny because when something resonates with my tuning fork, but moving on, anybody that you would like to work with, you haven't worked with. Yeah, my, well, I mean, my dream, you know, I mean, it's never, you know, I'd love to work with with uh you know you two <laughs> how's that okay what would you do differently what what is what would you bring to the uh, party i can't uh, you know i i wouldn't know off the top of the bat i'd have to hear what that what is it there's something about what they did culturally at a time that i was coming through music their their intelligence their life experience it's it's rock music doesn't age gracefully most of the time you know it's a tough thing because it's, it's a it's an adolescent urge right and in necessary you know so intellectually you have to have a, a different bent a different pursuit to 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 keep connecting i mean it, it can't connect at the same level when you're young it just it's it doesn't exist that doesn't exist but musically um lyrically even spiritually kind of where they come from i'm interested they, they interest me that's the, the that that type of artist interests me now i'm you asked me that and i uh, immediately that's my dream that's shooting for the moon right will that happen yeah, well yeah you might as well go with a dream yeah and yeah. they've worked with the same people consistently so for me it would be interesting did you watch that movie it might get loud with Jack White, Jimmy Page, and The Edge? No. It's just very interesting that so much of The Edge's sound are effects. No doubt. But he is. But the irony about that, right, me, is that he has affected guitar players as much as anybody else, period. Well, I'm trying to say is, since you're starting 
it's not like Jeff Beck's coming in and one take whale. Since you're starting someone who's laying effects, that's where you could help out. That's where you can do something. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I'm saying it probably because I just like to be in the room. I mean, yeah, it just seems to me more like 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 he deals with layers. He's an orchestrator, right? And it's it's a different type of u- using guitar for a different purpose, right? It's not guitar for guitar sake. Jeff Beck, if, if we're if if I'm being honest, the, the the one guitar player who I would most like to be in a room with would be Jeff Beck. Period. Hands down. He's going to die one day, and the people who didn't see him are really going to be, you know. I think he's the best. Jimmy Page brings other stuff. Hendrix brings other stuff. But when you have to choose one, it's Jeff Beck for me. And plays without a pick to boot. Yeah, I've seen him several times. I just, I, you know, all you, all you do is sit there and just. I got to see him at the the uh, um, at the Ryman Auditorium one time in Nashville. It's a great small theater, right? But acoustically, it's beautiful. And you know, every guitar player in Nashville was there. It was, you know, you're, you're, you're there. Talk about, they call it the mother church. Well, you're there. You're basically worshiping this guy and he didn't disappoint, you know? No, it's just, it's, 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 it's where soul and electric guitar meet. And, the, and there's nothing more to say. Tone, note choice, dynamics, just everything about what he does. You know I mean? It's like, it's, 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 it, it's, it is, there is something, I mean, this is where music is this transcendent level, right? It ain't about hit songs. See, that's the thing, right? There's, right? there's certain things we remember that are hit songs. This is a different thing. And it's and it's as integral to our lives as those hit songs are. When he plays notes, it says more than a hit song to me. It certainly does. So how much longer are you going to do this? This is a great question. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to stop making music. I don't. I don't know how long I'm going to continue making what we would call commercial-based music. I, I do have some other types of music. I mean, you mentioned Dave Cobb. I, I love soundtrack music. I I love music that's not commercial music. That's the irony. That the stuff that I get called to do is is not necessarily what what I spend my time listening to. So I I. I I hope that I get to do some music. Um, there's this there's this writer in town that writes great poetry. His name is Mike Reed. I don't know if you where you would know Mike Reed's name is. His most famous song is a song that Bonnie Raitt did called "I Can't Make You Love Me." Sure, right? And and it's like he writes. Mike's in his seventies. He he spends a lot of his time writing poetry now, and he his poetry is devastating. He's he he's he's like a one of my dearest friends. We spend time talking about authors and everything except music. But 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 we're musicians, right? And uh, the thing about a, the he writes songs that are not commercial, like what we would call commercial songs now, because he's writing from a perspective of living life seventy plus years. By the way, he was also all pro defensive end for the Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> so he's, he's in the song. He, he, he was all pro and he, he's also in the songwriting hall of fame right here. So, but he writes these songs that are so cool. Um, they're not, they're not like hit songs for kids to do. Right. But they, they deal with, with substance and, and thoughts that, that are becoming of, of somebody who's lived 70 years on earth. I, I'd love to work with, 
an artist that would want to record that kind of music to do that kind of music, right? Not on the grid of popular music. And and I think I think I have something to add for that. So so and by the way, Alan Shamlin too was co-wrote that song with him. I don't want to just give all the credit to Mike Reed on that. It was one of the best pop songs of a of a couple decades, right? Um, but that I, I I find that compelling. I'd like to make some music down, just I don't know, just something like that. Well, that's the real music. You know, another great writer I just have to mention, although he's self-contained on those Bonnie Raitt records, Paul Brady. Some mm, of those mm, songs, like mm, Luck of the mm. Draw, the title song. Yeah. And, you know, it's just the lyrics, et cetera. He had a chance like 30 years ago to break big. He worked with uh, Steely Dan's producer, but didn't happen. Although he's an icon in, in Ireland. Paul Brady. Yeah. You're not familiar with Paul Brady? Uh, well, I'm going to look him up after we finish our conversation. Oh, wait. He had one song, The Long Goodbye was a hit. Okay, now tell me who recorded it because this is where I'm going to show my ignorance. Brooks and Dunn. Oh, okay, yeah. I vaguely remember that. But since you're talking about lyrics, he had this song this song called Paradise is Here. No, but just lyrics. I'm going to play this lyric. I'm going to say, you say you want to live some, move out into the fast lane. You say you need excitement to make you come alive. Someplace a million miles from the shadows that surround you. I look for attention. You're lost in the future. Where lovers ask no questions and shadows never fall. Some pilgrim bound for paradise, no compromise. But paradise is here. And then it goes on. See, to me, and that comes with living, right? I mean, you, you don't write that when you're in your 20s unless you're extremely prolific and, and you're, you're kind of beyond your years. There's music to be made, I think, I think for all of us who have been through in, in the trenches of, of pop music. I think there's more music to be made outside as long as we can lose the idea that it has to be hit music, you know? They're going to be people... Well, I think a hit... No, there's a definition of a hit on the radio chart, the X number of millions of streams on Spotify. But I there are plenty of songs that are hits because they hit you a certain way. Yeah. They have a certain effect irrelevant of the commerciality. Yeah. You know, I could whip out 20, you know, 20 songs that means so much to me that we're never charted, but it's like unbelievable just to listen to those songs, which of course brings me to Jason Isbell. What do you think of Jason Isbell? Uh, I've seen him play live. I don't know a, a lot of his recorded music, but, but when I saw him play live, it was, I think a year and a half ago, it was, it was stunning. I mean, it's just, he doesn't seem to be constrained by what this whole idiom of pop music. He just, it, and this is kind of where I think things are, are headed because of, of, of streaming. It's like people just, they're going to do what they're going to do and people are going to find them. They're going to find their audience. Their audience is going to find them. And we, we don't, we're not going to have to bother as much with, with this idea of hit music anymore. At least I hope so. This has been fantastic, Dan. I want to thank you for taking so much time with me. I, I'm, I'm honored. And, uh, as I said, uh, you, you wrote a very kind piece about me and, 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 uh, uh, it was it was nice because a lot of friends called me that I hadn't heard from in a long time. So I'm honored to be a part of it, and 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 and, and thank you for for what you do from a historian standpoint, and just your involvement. I mean, it's like you know, the the world has changed too, hasn't it? Oh I mean, man, boy, has it changed. But the great thing about it is, you know, back in the old days, you knew every record on the chart, even if you never heard yeah, it. Yeah. 
Now nobody can know everything. No, no. It's like, it's just overwhelming. How long are you going to do this, Bob? I'm going to do this till I die. But what motivates me, I would articulate it in a different fashion, but it's that resonance. It's that thing. And I certainly am, you know, seven years older than you are. And so I was there when the Beatles broke, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of records, not only in the 60s, but in the 70s, that had so much meaning. Mm. The whole musical culture has changed, but there are a lot of elements in streaming TV. I mean, you could start with The Sopranos. I could mention shows where they nail essence of life. Mm. Most of them are foreign shows. That's what really resonates with me. And I find, just like if you... Go down that rabbit hole. If you stop worrying about giving people what they want, that's what they're most interested in. Mm. They're most interested in the personal and seeing what's going on in life. Mm. And, you know, and a rock star has completely changed from the 70s where it really became iconic. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, a rock star was as rich as anybody and would say no Mm -hmm. and could destroy hotel rooms. But today in the era of billionaires, you can't make that much money in music. All you can do is speak truth to power. And people have forgotten that. I mean, the power of a good song, if you listen to rock music today the on the act of rock, you need a whole lexicon just to figure out how they got there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know, it's not something that you hear once and just go, wow. So... I think, and it's, you know, another thing is this, and you reference this in an oblique way, is the political situation. Mm. This is driving our culture. The interesting thing is, when I talk to the titans of the live business, for years, they just want to talk politics. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about the tour, whatever, because there's so much at stake. Even in Nashville, where they redid, you know, gerrymandered, et cetera, it's... The future hangs in the balance. And now we have Ukraine. Mm. Everyone thought Russia would run over them in a minute. So the key is, and it's you. that's why I love so much what you said, you can't keep repeating yourself. That's death. Mm. 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 You know, as you say, you know what you bring to the party. And there's always a need for that because only you can deliver yourself. But I know some of these trade papers, these guys in the 70s, the names and the faces change. They're still doing it. It's like, holy fuck. You know, it's like there's got to be more to life. Yeah. Well, there is. There, there is. And, 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 and what you said also about some of this art that's streaming via television now, right? And people have, you got to give, you got to give people more credit. People have more of an attention span. They're smarter than we give people, than we give them credit, right? An audience. I couldn't, I've said, I say it a different way. People just have an incredible shit detector. Yeah. They go, no, no, no. And then they'll watch a streaming show for 10 hours. Yeah. And that's, and and those are the values. I think, I think we're just starting to become, become confronted with again in music. It's like, no, it's not an algorithm. I'm sorry. You've, you've got, there is a thing called soul and you've got to access it and you've got to listen for it. And it's, it's precious. And you can stomp the ever-living life out of it if you are not, if you're not humble enough to sit and wait for it. You know, and, and, and for me, you know, you know, it's my small world, but it's in a recording studio, 
but it, it does exist. And boy, when you, I witnessed it today. I witnessed it in a beautiful way. It was awesome. This thing came to life out of nowhere. We had no pre-programming. There was nothing. There, there was not even a demo. There was a guitar uh, work tape. And we just allowed this thing to blossom in. And it was, it was like it happened, you know? Well, you know, how I became aware of your success in the country music world, I have a friend who's a country music agent. And his, his recommendations are phenomenal. And this goes back to, I guess, 2007. He sent me Keith Urban's Stupid Boy. Oh, yeah. And you go, holy fuck. You know, people say, oh, country music. Listen to this mm. track. Mm. This is better than any of the rock and roll. I mean, forget that it's an amazing guitar solo. It's soulful. Not to mention the song itself is so great. Mm. Sarah Buxton wrote that, by the way. I sat next to her at Joe Walsh's 75th birthday party. I bet you her, I bet you Tom Bukovac, her husband, then was playing guitar for Joe Walsh, probably. Well, he was there. Joe played for a little while, you know, with some of the regulars that he's played with. I don't remember. We were sitting at the same table. Yeah. I can't remember who played. But yes, she was, you know, it's funny because it's such a heavy, serious song, and she's such a breezy woman. It's yeah, kind of yeah. funny. Yeah, she's she's from a different era, Sarah is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's listen, the songwriters got fucked in streaming. There's no doubt about that. They got the smaller piece of pie than they deserve. And I hope they can get more. However, you cannot hold back the future. No. Mm -mm. Yes. You used to have one track on a CD. It sold millions of copies. You got paid. Those days are through. Yeah. They're just through. And so until you recognize where we are, you're lost. We, we can't, we can bring elements of the past into the future, but you know, I hear from these people all day long, you know, streaming's not paying enough. Most of these people, they wouldn't even be able to make records in the old days. No. And, and you know what, you know, again, we have our perspective, we've been through it. Right. And, and we have our expectations. Right. You tell that to an 18 year old kid, man, they don't care. Is they, you know what they want, you know what I wanted to do when I was 18, I wanted to be able to make my rent so I could play music the next day. That was the value. And that's still what it's all about, man. If you can make your rent, if you can play a show that night, for me, it was playing a session, a demo session. That's it. The rest of it is, is, is whatever your life. You, it's probably good. The thing got toppled for a while because it needs to reinvent itself. You know, and it may, you can say, well, it's easy for you to say because you lived through some fat times. Yeah, I did. But, but that's not why I got involved in it. That never was the reason. No. Not at no. all. Not at all. But the interesting thing is for the last 20 years, used to be every three to seven years, we got a whole new sound. Yeah. And that hasn't happened. Now, a lot of other things, Yeah, you know, you can mention, you can go to the coast and you can mention the number one country hit records. And there are a lot of people who have no idea who these acts are. Yeah. Same thing, you know, some of these records that are number one on the pop charts, the weekend, you can evade things now. Used to be you couldn't avoid yeah. hearing certain sounds and there was a cohesiveness. So maybe it's more of an understanding, you know, the major labels you said earlier are so focused on hit singles, they're conceding the rest of the universe yeah. to other people. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting thing, not to, and, and not to be self-serving this thing, but, but I just finished just working with Kane Brown and, and, I, mean, I do a lot of, of his production. I don't do all of it because he, he does a lot of collaborate collaborations with, with different hip hop artists. And I don't do that, you know, 
And, and it's, it's, it's funny because he's, you know, he's, he's a new breed of artist. You know, he's, he, he has his roots. He grew up in, in the South and his, he was raised by his grandfather who turned him on to, uh, to, uh, uh Randy Travis records when he was a kid. Right. <laughs> he's, he's from a, a, a mixed race family. His grand, his granddad was white. You know, here's this young kid, biracial kid growing up in the South under some pretty tough conditions, just trying to figure it out. Thankfully, he channeled it through music. As a matter of fact, the first time I met him, he was here at my studio playing me songs, and he played me a song that just ripped my heart out called Learning. Yes. He grew up with a consciousness towards country music, and he knows so much about country music. But then the hip-hop world loves this guy because he's, he's, he's got a really cool voice. And he's a country artist, but he's not constrained by being a country artist. This guy is playing to every kind of audience in the world. And it's, it's, I, I, I love that because it's, you know, the, the idea that you can, you can label one individual by, by a music genre is, is to me is a joke. This, he just loves music. He sings what the hell he wants to sing and he'll sing a song. He just, he, he we just did a song the other day called pop's last name. Right, he's singing about his deceased grandfather that he absolutely loves that that raised him. Right, and then what's his latest pop? I can't remember the 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 latest pop single that he had. Humongous pop single, you know. It's like, and he's just going to hell with it all. I'm just gonna put out songs. I'm gonna drop tracks. Right, and of course everybody's <laughs> running after him. You can't do that. Well, yeah, you can. You know, I think that's phenomenal. You know, and we just all trying to keep up with him because he's, you know, he's he's doing what he does. That's the future right there. It's it's nobody owns nobody owns this stuff. You know, it's 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 owned by the future. Well, on some level, the baby boomers have to die. Yeah, because the ethos of the younger people is just totally. I mean, this is a crooked business. Hmm. Younger people don't view it that way. They don't mind making money, but they say, okay, it's ones and zeros. This is what I'm owed. Whatever. Yeah, and. You know, all this focus that we have is, not, it is across the board. It's not only music, et cetera. At some point, you have to seed it. They're stealing the world, so we don't really have to seed it because there's a lot of good stuff coming out. You talk about Florida Georgia Line. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a band that recently broke up and has gotten a lot of shit. But they injected a lot of hip-hop into country. And it, and it was good for everybody. No joke. And it's, and you know... That's these kids growing up playing country music, right? You go to these country bars and it's hip hop music between sets. Well, that's because that's what they're growing up on. And and they're not interested in just being one thing. And I think that's phenomenal. I mean, to me, that's mu- music is not supposed to be one language. It's supposed to en- encompass all languages, right? And you have your dialect, you, 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 but I want to know how they speak in another country. That's the beauty of all this stuff. Nobody owns it. Let the thing out of the bag. And as a matter of fact, we're not letting shit out of the bag. It's it's out of the bag, right? We're just hanging on for dear life. It's, well, that's one thing we've learned. Nobody is in control. Yep. I mean, this is going to pop. But COVID, you realize, I thought that the world was, the country was kind of run by a few people and it was all kind of where not whatsoever. Yeah. The fact that the country works at all, any country is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a million people with a million different thoughts. Never mind, you know, right or wrong. It's just astounding. I mean, this is a 
you know, you go, you talked about the attention span. The other thing that makes me crazy is people bitching about the phone. How great is the phone? You can be in contact with people 24-7. You can go down the rabbit hole of the stuff that you're interested in. I mean, I could never be in contact with this many people. I could, I mean, I never even talk on the phone. So I'm not saying that whatever, but to have that in your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot more interesting than a lot of shit that's going around a lot of time. That's why people are on their phone. <laughs> Only problem you, you and I have is we're, 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 we're in the same adult class, right? And we could talk forever. So um, for me, this is wonderful because I meld what I already know with a deep dive into your world of country. I mean, I certainly know a lot of people who work in country, but your perspective, the best parts were how you do it. You know, the collaboration. I have a friend who was ran publishing in Canada for a long time. I mean, big believer in collaboration. And what do you think of the Beatles documentary? Did you watch oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, just it's it's what you know intuitively in your heart and to see your heroes doing that thing, that almost painful family thing was great. The fact that so much of it was spontaneous and not premeditated just blew my mind because the records are so iconic. The fact that they said, well, we got a couple of weeks, we're doing something, just unbelievable. Collaboration is it. That's really what it is. I mean, you can't underestimate what that is worth. I mean, for the good and the bad, but it's 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 what I, I, I really seriously think everybody has about three good ideas. That's it. Now, there are some people who are, extraordinarily gifted above the rest of us and and take them out of the equation. But the rest of us, we got three or four good ideas. But exponentially, you put that in the room with 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 four people who, who've who gotten three or four ideas from somebody else, and th th then the world, you have the world at that point. And that's that's what I would get get a chance to witness. I, I, and like I said, I saw it today. So it was, it was really nice. Well, you could expand that to many other elements of our universe, even though we're not. But in any event, till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself. 
So turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.